0: I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ryan Bolin. And we love to watch... We love to watch Hellboy 2, The Legend of Curly's Golden Army.
1: I feel like you were so excited about the joke that you uh laughed fucked it up and then rushed through it uh who's
0: editing this one aaron i
1: guess if if what i said makes sense i am and if if it doesn't make sense uh peter is we're uh we're back talking more about the hells the boys the hell boys um and yeah, we're we'll
0: just so we're get talking right about to hell. Real... We're talking about Hellboy. We're not talking about general boys very much.
1: Uh we're not going to be talking about the television show The Boys, which I assume is about children.
0: Uh yeah. Yeah. It's about a bunch of neighborhood pranksters called The Boys. Um one of them is a white nationalist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that sounds about right. Oh, those <laughs> uh, boys. Those boys, they get into trouble. They get into scamps. They are scamps.
2: Scamps, sc- scamps getting into scamps.
0: Scamps, they're making noise. They're the boys.
1: But we're the Watch Boys, and we're making noise, specifically on a podcast Never called... boys.
2: Doys. <laughs> 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 and... We're boys. One of us is a white nationalist. <laughs> Maybe what you guys white nationalist don't know. Would use the word goy. <laughs> what? <laughs> what white nationalist? Would,
0: what na- white na- nationalists would use the word goy? Oh, uh, undercover. Under- <laughs> I'm going deep undercover. Just absolutely just just line in the sand, refusing to do any impression, any comedy bit on nope. this. Just, just I'm, try, I'm trying to
1: move on. To watch <laughs> voice.
0: and where we love to watch, we're movie podcasts. We pick a
1: theme, uh, we do movies over the course of a month around that theme. Uh, but this is our this is our third super summer double month, and we are doing Magnolia and Del Toro super adventures in Hollywood, and we're actually at the last movie already, where Mike Magnolia and Del Toro work together on a completed project. Uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about what happened with Hellboy 3 um, or what didn't happen with Hellboy 3 uh, becoming Hellboy 2019 next week. But this is kind of... I'm glad we, we reordered the schedule to end on a really high note, but this is kind of the the last of the the two amigos... Making what I'm going to say is the best movie that we're covering this month. And a movie that is so much fun that as I'm watching it, I was like, I got to watch this again. Uh, which is, I always think it's a, a mark of a good movie where as you're watching it, you're like, I want to rewatch the movie that I'm currently watching. <laughs> um but And that is Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, this the 2008 sequel to Del Toro's original Hellboy movie, which came out in 2004. This one does not follow uh, even loosely the plot of the comic books, creates its own adventure, and does a really uh, amazing job with that in a way that I think is going to contrast a lot with what we talked about last week, which was two animated movies produced by Del Toro. Uh, that uh, come up with their own adventures to but don't don't hit the stylistic or uh, aesthetic sweet spot that this one does. This one felt like it should be a part of the Hellboy comic series because it just gets everything fucking right. And we're joined by, uh, not surprise guests, because I think we invited you back during the ending of our Hellboy episode, but uh, Ryan Bolin. Who oh, is right. Peter's best friend? Which is why I'm introducing him because I, we need to make sure that this intro is a, has no bias associated with it. By I don't know having a pee contest when second grade or something weird that I don't know about. Um <laughs> You got to
2: keep it tight. The uh, intro, not but, the pee contest. <laughs> yeah, you got
0: to keep the, the streams of your pee. You got to keep that stream. While, otherwise, <laughs> keep it real tight. Because if you do sort of a, <laughs> cause if you do sort of like a a, a, a shotgun effect, um, mm-hmm. you're not going to go very far. But um, together, all together, you know, you want to go far, go together, um, and that's why um, when you're doing a peak contest, try and keep your stream headed forward.
1: I do think that it's probably good that we have a lot to talk about tonight <laughs> because I would like to spend at least twenty minutes talking about what if your peak came out like a buckshot. Okay. Are we talking like, like is more there, of that is there one recoil? setting is there... on the shower or the garden hose <laughs> nozzle where it's like a outward horizontal spray, like a like a dome mm-hmm. of water?
0: It gives a whole new meaning to the word choke particularly choking chickens.
1: I like the idea that they have to remodel urinals <laughs> at, like, uh, like stores. So, like, it's the same space but one urinal. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has to wait in a very long way. But Ryan guess on uh, Hellboy 2004, which you watched and recorded with Peter while he was visiting him in San Diego. Thanks for the invite again. Uh, and... <laughs> Uh we and uh, he, we were talking so much about how all the stuff in Hellboy got us even more excited for Hellboy 2, which while the first Hellboy is a really good movie, Hellboy 2 really figures out very quickly what worked, what didn't work, and makes an uh, amazing movie out of it. Ryan was getting all hyped out and we're like, well, we don't have a guest. Why don't we invite?
2: I know I was I was already I felt primed and ready to go where I was like, I just want to end this podcast and go watch Hellboy 2. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, how about we just do this? Hellboy 2. Yeah,
1: it's been a little bit since I've watched it. But I immediately I texted Peter 20 minutes in. I'm like, it's probably a good sign. That I I have had a smile on my face for the last twenty minutes. This is everything I remembered it being. Ryan, did you? You guys didn't end up like watching it when we were done recording. Did you fly back to Chicago, uh, into your normal life with your normal TV?
2: Yes. Yeah. No. So I, I watched it just a couple days ago. So you know, I, it's been a long time since I've watched it, but it was one that's always been kind of close to my heart. It was one of those where I was like oh, I need to have it on Blu-ray back when Blu-rays yeah. weren't super popular. But you're like, oh, it's just such a pretty movie and it's so well done, all those things. So, no, I got to come home, you know, actually watch it on the disc and act like that's more important than, you know, anything else. But, no, it was it was great. I did the same thing. I was I was talking a lot through it because I was just, like you said, kind of grit. It kind of took me back a little bit like a, a time machine where all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, there's that. Oh, I don't think I've ever even noticed this or that or whatever because – especially when you're, I'm watching it to talk about it actively, then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta be looking behind them and doing this and that. And there's, I mean, it's jam packed. It really is. It's, I mean, it's kind of del Toro's thing, but there's just such a labor of love and it's just like oozing out of every, every scene the, the background, all of it. It's just so intricate. It's great.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I'm assuming you and Peter used to watch it, uh, back when you were closer friends, uh, in physical space terms not emotionally support but you hadn't watched it since for for a while
2: oh yeah no it's probably been at least seven years something like that
1: yeah i think i watched it like i watched it when it came out i did not see in theaters huge mistake on my part i did see the 2004 original in theaters and but i saw it a couple times maybe like 2010 or 11 i mean it's been a while yeah it just isn't it it's it actually i have a list of movies that are due for a rewatch even before we did this month, and both the hellboys uh were on it mainly because I really felt like it had been too long since I had seen this movie peter has it had it been as long for you i uh i i kind of knowing how much you love hellboy uh in all of its forms uh which is a new love for me but It's been a long running love for you. I imagine that this ends up in the rotation more than it was for the two of us.
0: Yeah, it's it's an annual watch. It's a comfort watch. Um, It's a movie I watch when um, it's actually gotten to the point where uh, I was, I don't know, maybe six months ago, Molly and I were really depressed uh, just with COVID stuff and Molly and I was uh, not doing great. And uh, Molly was like. If I put on Hellboy 2 for you, will you smile? And I was like, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually seen the movie in the past year because um, it's sort of turned into an annual comfort watch. There's a handful of, like, adventure movies, very often, uh, strangely enough, for, like, my uh, disgusting horror interests, very often PG-13, but um, these sort of adventure movies that, uh, they, they they satisfy everything I want in a movie, they don't in any way like over time ingratiate. They don't over time uh become any clunkier to me. Uh, over time, they actually become more charming. Um, unlike a lot of like comedies that I loved growing up. <laughs> um, so these sort of adventure movies kind of serve the purpose that I think people think about with like a comfort movie is like a comedy. Um, because like over time, a lot of comedy movies uh you sort of be like oh well that's just a gay joke, that's a black joke. Um. Wh- what if what if the movie is just about like uh mummies and shit? That would be that would be great.
2: Oh, that's just racism. Wait a second, hold on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's not a epic love story. That's just
1: misogyny.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I will say that Hellboy 2 kind of fell into the sweet spot uh, also of like um if we we're ever hanging out with other people and it was brought up, I mean, Hellboy in general, I feel like is quick to get a eye roll or like a ooh from from most people i mean just because that's what they remember about it and me and peter would be quick to defend especially hellboy 2 and i feel like those nights would always end with like oh then all of a sudden we're just talking at somebody about how much we liked hellboy 2 and then at the end of the night we're like so do you want to watch hellboy 2 you're like yeah that's of course that's that's what i want to do is just watch hellboy 2 (laughs) yeah
0: we're we're practiced hands at this at this point it's a it's a great comfort movie yeah, I think uh,
1: when I think comfort movie, I I think a cost strangers at parties into watching. It. Yes, but <laughs> exactly. Uh,
0: yeah, I think I think um, we take comfort in the way uh, a, a a doomsday cult takes comfort in the, the learnings of the father.
2: We'd say, are you guys fucking Hellboy? And they'd say no. And we go, well, the thing is
0: <laughs> you are now. <laughs> Yeah, so let's
1: talk a little bit about, I mean, we'll, there's so much to talk about in the movie, we can we can go right through the, probably, like, production stuff pretty quickly. So, Hellboy, despite uh, Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Christ. <laughs> <laughs> put, put the possessive on the wrong who's, name. Who's Christ because I, just,
0: I decided to go last name a little bit too late in my head. Um, Aaron, just so you know, there's only one Jesus Christ.
1: Oh, so, uh, you're forgetting about uh, the the Holy Ghost Jesus, mm-hmm. the Father Jesus, and then the Jesus Son. Which one is are really? Hold on. Peter, I don't know if you know the spoiler alert. They're all one person. So
0: I yeah, But they're not
2: all Jesus. I'm, I want to back up Aaron on this. Yeah, make I think that I have. makes sense, Peter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's not my
2: job. I'm not <laughs> the
0: Pope. Uh, I'm not the CEO of Catholicism. (laughs) If only
1: only, uh, fiction writing worked the same as, like, religion, right? Like, this seems like a plot hole. No, that's the mystery that God thinks you're too dumb to understand. No, you just (laughs) don't get it. You just can't get it because it's a mystery. Because you're not divine. Like, oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so anyways. So this movie, uh, despite Jesus Christ's best efforts... Um, Hellboy, the first one was a success. Not a rip roaring success, but I'd say roaring. It was, had a budget of like, I think $40 million and made about $90 million enough for, uh, Revolution Studios to make a sequel. So they announced one pretty quick and they were on track to go to make that his, uh, his next movie. And, but instead, as with all things Del Toro, uh, after announcing it, uh, Revolution in Columbia, they had some licensing stuff that fell through, and they changed priorities, so Del Toro goes and makes Pan's Labyrinth, and some wherever the rights ended up, it weirdly, like, what, what's funny about this movie is that the first one feels like a Revolution Studios movie, like, that kind of, like, not quite a full studio, it gets the distribution from Columbia... Uh, but it has a little more darker, edgier. This one's brighter and bigger, and it does feel like it was uh, released by Universal Studios, who ended up um, opting for the rights or had the option to take the rights and continue on on the trilogy. So there was a speed bump in getting number two in production, but it wasn't the colossal clusterfuck that trying to get a third one made ended up... Uh, being which i actually think like the fact that del toro's whole story here and getting this one made is just he got to make a masterpiece in between is you know pretty good for them
0: yeah and this this is one of those those things where um he was going into this movie with the cachet of a movie that everyone loves and when you watch there's a this movie and the first movie both have a special feature on the dvd that's like a two and a half hour making of and uh I didn't end up watching all of either of them, but I watched pieces of them and people kept saying, well, Del Toro just did Pan's Labyrinth. So like, we really, he really wants to, you know, give respect to, to, uh, you know, his, his, his monster roots. And, you know, he really wants to show off that he still got it, that this isn't a retreat for him. And it's like, this movie feels like Del Toro was like, well, uh, I made a monster movie that had appeal to Oscar voters. And I fucking love Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, now I'm making a monster movie that, that's supposed to appeal to everyone. Who doesn't want to see um, three or four times the weird freaks that have been in Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy combined? Uh, apparently a lot of people.
1: Yeah, well, this movie was actually more successful than the first one, which is uh uh, which is which is odd con- considering how much harder a third one of this was to make
0: but and, and also uh, it's it's interesting to note that uh the efforts to pick up on the third movie um were made after shape of water did what pan's labyrinth did exactly it broke cu- cultural conversations it garnered awards it actually garnered much bigger awards than pan's labyrinth did and uh, he used that as a as a, a bit of uh, ignition, a bit of NOS to get himself into uh, meetings for Hellboy 3 and with Magnola, and there's these sort of... Uh, and he, he sort
1: of succeeded, because it was because of that, that they made Hellboy, but they, for some inexplicable reason, which we'll discuss next week, Peter, they only wanted him to produce, not write or direct. <laughs>
2: Yes. Yes. And uh, like, what the fuck? Like, Wait, so without getting into it, because I know you guys are, it was Mignola still on board during this one, Golden Army. Like they were still still buddies.
0: Mignola is on board through uh, the 2019 film as well. And he still has, because he's the, he's the creator of the comic book. Dark Horse does creator own comics. Mm -hmm. He could keep pushing forever to make Hellboy movies. He could be pushing to make, I don't know if the studios would keep biting, but um, he could keep pushing, you know, Hulu to make a Hellboy show next week. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, it, uh, but the, the deal is that there were closed door meetings with Magnolia and Ron Perlman and Del Toro and different combinations of them and, and Universal Studios heads and different studio heads. Um, they shopped it around a bunch. I think at some point they might've taken it to like Netflix and streaming companies Um, and the long and short of it is we don't actually know. We don't.
1: Yeah. The only thing we know is that they want someone, whether it was the studio or Mignola, did not want Del Toro to write and direct. They just wanted him to produce, um, which he had no interest in because he had been working on. I guess there was a script that they gave him. And he's like, I hey, have you been noticing everything I've said to every interview? Yeah, in uh, a pop culture website for the last ten years, I wrote a script. Yeah, I've been I've been doing it, and then, um, yeah, and then Ron Perlman was like, No, like I'm not coming back without Del Toro, and that's when it like shifted from sequel to. To reboot and it's then sort of there's a, a reboot
0: quill. <laughs> there's like there's like twenty percent sequel DNA in there, but it's it's yeah it's yeah, it's ninety percent. It's, it, it, it's eighty five to ninety percent a, a full on reboot. Yeah,
1: that movie is more interesting from a uh, uh, behind the scenes stuff than an actual movie. Now that I've actually watched it, but <laughs> absolutely, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get there. Goku we'll get on. there next week. So, but *Where Pen's Labyrinth* and that delay actually is really helpful. Is that um, so? Before Pan's Labyrinth, when they were going to go to an immediate sequel, uh, Magnolia and Del Toro were going to make the the Roger story, the Almost Colossus story, uh, the the follow up to this. And if you don't know the Hellboy comic, essentially there's this character Roger who is this uh, automaton who is created and eventually like tries to kill Liz and eventually he's a homunculus. Parker. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: he's made starts, a he's made a shit and piss and other stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah, and he actually ends up becoming a really good character, but character. they um it ended up just being a little bit um too difficult to to uh, adapt they weren't they didn't like where it was going and then he he decides to start working on pan's labyrinth and mignola goes and visits him while he's making pan's labyrinth and he's creating all this fairy tale stuff and this um more mythological stuff and and that and mignola at this point the hellboy comics were getting more into that right like uh almost colossus is one of the early stories after the um the, the stuff that we essentially saw a- adapted in the first Hellboy movie, which is more Nazi stuff. It's a little more, uh, you know, gun-toting and violent, you know. And then by by the end of the Hellboy comics, which we're going to talk next week, it's like, you're King Arthur's kid. <laughs> like, <laughs> slay the giants! and the, You know, like, it becomes a lot more mythological uh, focus. And so that's where Mignola's headspace was anyways. He's seeing all the fairy tale shit that... um that del toro's putting together and they're like they kind of collaborate and they're like let's make an original story that's more leaning into at least aesthetically and thematically where my he- where the comic books are at right now with hellboy anyways which is perfect because uh even though they're they don't jump ahead and adapt all that stuff because those comics which we'll talk about in our final episode essentially cut out all of the um supporting cast uh and really don't fit the tone of the first hellboy movie which is more like you know a beast exiled from society trying to trying to like um relate and solve the you know and with a team of other freaks so to speak and hunt uh, monsters in this cool secret government organization At this point in the comics, Hellboy's in a state of, like, maybe I'll kill myself. Oh, no, this monster's trying to kill me. I guess I'll punch him. (laughs) Oh, I guess I gotta... Like, it it doesn't, like, totally... the, The story structure doesn't work with what a Del Toro Hellboy movie does. So they take it thematically and aesthetically, and they make a whole new story. But really, like... I know you can look to, like, say, like, the, the uh, you know, the some of the designs and the monster designs and go, oh, it's almost like he made a Hellboy Pan's Labyrinth. But really, this isn't just El Toro. Mignola is very much involved in trying to make a Hellboy movie that aesthetically fits where he's at mentally uh, or
0: creatively
1: at the time this movie gets released without just trying to adapt a specific story.
0: Yeah, it has some, it has some rhyming with other stories that I, I feel like no one has really pointed out. Like it does have, it does have some rhyming with the story of uh, Dagda, um, which is a sort of a royal figure in this under underworld that's sort of hanging out near uh, Yggdrasil. I don't know actually how you say it. That's one of those words that I've just realizing now I don't know how to pronounce. Uh, the world tree. Um, yep. Yep. The, uh, the Dagda is a sort of royal figure that helps control a bunch of these, these um, you know, the, the um, Baba Yaga and these, these sort of mythic figures of, of you know, changelings and, and trolls and these sort of uh, under, or netherworld, I should say, uh, sort of figures in the Hellboy universe. Um, and those figures end up uh, performing uh, an uprising, so to speak, in the final arc. Of of the Hellboy uh, comics, the main Hellboy comics, that sort of is kind of where they're they're pushing where this is, comes from. But this doesn't get into uh, the Blood Queen um, or any of that. Uh, the figures are all essentially concocted uh, out of out of uh, Del Toro's uh, mind plus mythological figures. Sometimes mythological figures kind of remixed. Like he liked the name Nuada. Um, yeah. and he took that and he kind of reworked that myth and to fit into Del Toro's mold, which is also a very Mignola thing. Like Mignola was like, uh, yeah, there was this one, let's say there's a, there's a mythological figure named, uh, old Bob and old Bob, uh, he always had a, a, a cane and, uh, an M1 tank. <laughs> and I didn't really like the M1 tank. So I made it a horse and I didn't like the cane, so I made it, like, <laughs> it's kind of like, that's kind of how Mignola was, like, I wanted to adapt the story as, like, spirit, but, like, the iconography is not working for me, or when I draw it, it looks stupid. Um, that's kind of how yeah. this, this feels. This feels like they were, like la- well, DeToro was like, you know, I don't actually want to directly adapt any of your adaptations of mytholog- myth of myth. Um, similar to the last movie, uh, it, it's somewhere, it's almost like Del Toro is interpreting myth through interpreted myth. Um, yeah. and it could work that way, but also, uh, alternatively, it can also fit very neatly within, um, Hey, what if this was just a weird adventure Hellboy went on? That's not covered in any of the comics. It could fit pretty neatly in there right before the sort of final, final arc of the Hellboy comics leading up to Hellboy in Hell.
1: Yeah, I I agree. agree. Yeah, (laughs) and and this this movie actually does a really good job, too, which I'll talk about in the back half of, like, you see a moment where – so the original Hellboy is, like, very close to Wake the Devil, right? It combines some stuff, but, like, that idea of, uh, you know, Hellboy being this person that Rasputin brought forward – and then he serves with his dad in this uh, organization, and his dad dies, and he's on his own, and there's Abe, and there's Liz, and, you know, the, they Rasputin comes back to bring about the uh, Ogdru Jihad coming to Earth, and Hellboy stops him, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, there's the romantic component, there's other things, but it's, it's pretty straight um adaptation and so like when you look at like okay well as you're plotting the next two movies there's an arc that ex- is existing that definitely Magnola note about and probably shared with del toro about like where you could plot a threequel and then this movie dispenses with most of that but there's a great moment in this movie where it's very clear how they're taking that once again thematically and spiritually and saying, okay, here's the arc that we can take us home for a finale uh, that may not be exactly where Hellboy ends up or would have ended up. But still kind of hits that idea of this this person who is doomed to make a choice uh, between uh, continuing to live or destroying everything he loves or fulfilling his destiny or... Whether he's even available to, and they they link it to the part they they link that destiny clearly to Liz too, who you know at um who had no part of that destiny, or, or especially not the same relationship in that in the book. So I, I do think there's a very clever moment where I really wanted to see what that ending of the Hellboy series looked like. But that was something I didn't really get the first time I saw it either, just because I, I think knowing the books and knowing where all those go. Even though this is wildly different, the beats you can see uh, are 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 going to be similar, and I would have loved that interpretation
0: of the ending of the Hellboy arc.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, and there's a there's a you know everyone says this about different comic books and longer narrative, but like maybe the best version of this story would have been a uh, streaming you know, four season kind of thing with monster of the week narratives. And then those monster of the week narratives. There's little, little droplets of lore about Rasputin coming back. And then the last four episodes of the season or two episodes of the season are, you know, actually fighting Rasputin. And then you move on to the next major arc. And then, you know, maybe once a season, there's a episode where it's just a bunch of anthology stories shoved together, right? Like, that sounds great. But at this time, Del Toro had to make a decision. He was like, well... The story begins with Hellboy's uh you know conception and his origin story and then he overcomes Rasputin to to you know set his own fate. The second movie is about him being haunted by that decision because that's like the whole middle arc of the comics is is Hellboy. Yeah. I wouldn't say feeling bad about um Becoming a monster killer, but just like generally feeling out of sorts, out of place. A man between two worlds that is neither part of of either. And he's lost his father figure. He's lost pieces of his family. The BPRD at times is is, is, is treats them just like a bunch of lab freaks that, you know, go off to the slaughter. Uh, Del Toro, I think, made it a, a, a rather and McNoah made a rather genius decision to say, I think, Max, we're getting three movies. We're lucky to get two. Here's what we do. The middle story is just condensing all of those lore and all the little stories here and there and what I was kind of getting at, which is that like Hellboy is this adventurer that engage that engages with the mythological with his fist and his gun out, that he he beats the fuck out of these monsters. He absolutely destroys them, and stomps them to death. And then, uh, the, the, but the monsters, one of the, what if one of these monsters actually begins to make him question, Hey, why are you fighting? Us, which is what Nuada's role is in this N- Nuada, who has i don't think any real sense of what hellboy's ultimate fate is going to be um but he uh he's thinking of hellboy as a particularly dangerous enemy and he knows that a way to disarm him is to say like you're being manipulated by them right you know this um man is just turning the rest of the the people that are outside man against the rest of us and haven't we suffered enough? And then Del Toro's final arc was gonna be this Beast of the Apocalypse arc, where Hellboy has to finally put to rest his um, his call um to either be a be this this beast of the apocalypse or be something else. And is they, he human? Is he not human?
2: And they even kind of touch on that where like it, it makes sense thematically that he, he's trying to kind of plant that seed of not even distrust or doubt, but just like uncertainty. And then it also seems to mimic the other theme of like gears, gears in the machine, where Hellboy right now is just a, a gear in the machine, a cog in the the wheel for mankind's doing. So it's kind of yeah. it kind of works for both of them, where it's you know he's there to just try and start cracking the ice, not necessarily break it all the way through.
1: Yeah, I think I do think that all works um, really well, and it's why like. You know, when I first saw this in 2008, having not read any of the comics, I why would I not know that this is an, this is an original, or why would I know that this is um, an original story? Right? It's it seemed like it was a classic, uh, you know, sequel that they just pulled from. As far as I knew, countless comic books, and what's impressive is that even having read all the Hellboy comics, when I rewatched it uh, here. Is that it still felt at home with the Hellboy universe that I that I knew? Like, there's a part of me that was like, "Am I sure this wasn't a comic? I think I read all of them, but like, this just fits so well." And I, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. I think, you know, I know some of this stuff is overblown and is like the 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 you know the, kind of the reason for some of the worst nerd rage and 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 dumb stuff between adaptations and not adaptations and. You know, I Peter and I have always been very, I think, pretty vocal that like don't necessarily try to adapt a book exactly how the book goes. Don't try to remake a movie exactly how the previous movie, if it was successful, went like, you know, t- take a creator, take an idea and make your own vision because you're never going to equal or even reflect what comes there. And so, you know, normally I think there's – when you're talking about the world of like a niche comic book hero – And then a movie version that's an original story, that's the type of shit that usually I feel like gets fans of the property a little bit up in arms, Mm -hmm. you know? And and usually it's a huge failure. Like how many X-Men movies or something like that do – that were just complete piles of garbage or or other superhero movies where I think a lot of the critic – Consensus is, oh, cool, an original story. You don't want to draw on, I don't know, 50 years of ideas that you could plug and play and make something good with as opposed to trying to write your own dumbass story that like no one cares about. And I think in most cases that actually ends up being right. Like how many shitty superhero movies have we grappled with that's like a original story when uh, there is a lot of good content that they should be pulling for?
2: a remixed version of adaptation or a thematic adaptation. There are a well-established arcs in all of these properties that you're like, why not do that and add some flavor to it rather than say, well, I'll just take the characters and go ground up.
1: Yeah. You don't need to create a new villain for Batman. Yes. Right. Like just, just use, use one of the existing villains in a new way, but no one's interested in that. So the fact that like this Hellboy movie, succeeds i think critically i think with with fans of the the comic but with with hellboy the comics and audiences in general as well i think is is showing how well they nailed this almost impossible pitch which is uh we're gonna create um a sequel to a movie that f- that was a true adaptation of a, one of the hellboy graphic novels we're going to go in a, an original direction and you're still going to walk away going i just saw a fucking awesome hellboy movie not a attempt to make a, uh, take a take a property sell tickets based on the property's namesake but not have it really have anything to do with the property itself and th-
0: and that in and of itself is it's, Quite the accomplishment and also when it comes from i think it's a matter of, of, of cinematic competence and confidence too del toro is somebody who is so incredibly confident and competent that this movie um we talked about blade two a few weeks ago this movie feels like it is um taking uh building on the technical competence that he's built in every single movie from pan's labyrinth to blade two even going back to mimic he's 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 taking lessons he's learned and applying them to make this movie that needs a little bit of everything. It needs the gentle touch. It needs, it needs the gentle touch and, and the bit of magic and whimsy that pan's labyrinth has. Uh, it also needs this epic scope that like a blade two has. Um, and that, that, that confidence and that competence is, I think what makes nerds and fans in general, just more comfortable uh, with d- the decisions that you've made because when you have a mo- like, Like, look at uh, Rise of Skywalker and how uh, that film had a nice gloss, like a big, expensive Hollywood movie, but when you're watching it, you're just completely thrown off every 15 minutes just at the sheer incompetence of the scripting and how it works, and you, you're never emotionally attached to anything, and it feels like it's like... It feels like a Colin Trevorrow kind of thing. Like, does this does this director know what they're doing? Has this director directed anything before? And you know, well, it's JJ Abrams. He directed a lot of great stuff before. Why doesn't this work? With this movie, you get this sense of everything cohering and coalescing together. Uh, that 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 uh, I think helps when you're going into strange new territory as a fan, it's 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 more comforting. Um, Because you can tell you're in good hands.
2: It definitely does feel like a culmination of all of his abilities, talents, experiences. And it's kind of funny that it it ends up being shaped into a sequel for an existing property. Because I do think that there is a, a large bleed from Pan's Labyrinth in the best way. I think Pan's Labyrinth kind of gave him the... Playground to work on his signature spices, and then that leaks through. And I think that that helped the fact that it was an original story. It kind of made Hellboy one feel like it was a Hellboy movie by Guillermo del Toro. But Hellboy two feels like a Guillermo del Toro movie that happens to be Hellboy, and and it and it ends up working very well because there are parts that feel like you said in scope, like Blade two. And then there are definitely creatures. The creatures, it just feels Pan's Labyrinth all the way through in the best possible way. Um, And and I think that without having that time to work on kind of his own thing, I mean, I would assume he's still capable, obviously, and still very talented and all all that stuff. But I think that Pan's Labyrinth, without Pan's Labyrinth, that... Hellboy two would probably have been missing at least some of the pizzazz, some of the the cohesiveness of all of these things coming together. I think that's definitely true, right? Like something. Pan's Labyrinth was, I
1: think, the f- the first Del Toro movie where it really felt like, oh, holy shit, what am I seeing? And it felt like a pure distillation of of something that was like teetering on the edge for me in Del Toro from some of his previous movies, like. Like Hellboy is a really good example of I kind of want thirty percent more of this, and I or you know, or even Devil's Backbone, where I was like, I like this, but I want like a little bit more, and 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 Pan's Labyrinth was the first one where I I feel I I was like, oh, this is why I was always very curious about. We're excited about a Del Toro movie, even if he wasn't hitting home runs yet for Mm -hmm. me all the way. It's after this that, you know, then he does Hellboy 2, which, like I said, r- regardless of the creativity boost or the confidence or the fact that he had a ton of of freedom, I mean, Hellboy 2 just feels like a visionary operating on all cylinders, right? Like, it it just feels almost impossible how every frame of this movie is just injected with something visually interesting or fun or it just – it's it's such a – it, like, just knows how to make an adventure and a comic book movie and an action movie, like, all those things. Uh, and they talk about this on Hellboy 2. He essentially had total creative freedom to make the movie that he wanted to make. And we got Pants Labyrinth and we got Hellboy 2. And I think it shows why the fact that every studio in the world is lining up to give him money to keep doing that is
2: insane to me. It's easy to say he like hit his stride or found the groove or anything like that with Pan's Labyrinth, and it clearly led into Hellboy 2. But really, what it seems like it came down to is he, you know, had creative freedom. He had carte blanche to do what he wanted, and he was able to fully realize this vision that he seems to have, you know, very clearly in his own head and the ability to communicate that to others. It's just whether he gets in his own way or everyone around him tries to push him out in one way or another. Like, like you said, all of his other projects kind of seem to just have that one thing. Like it's, you can't quite put your finger on it. It's just those other, the Hellboy two and Pan's Labyrinth is just, you you can tell when you're watching magic. It's, it's those movies. It's, it's a a guy perfectly being able to, you know, paint what's in his head and it works and it's great to see. Yeah.
0: And there's yeah. a and and just to add to Ryan's point point, in the special features, there's a moment that's that's fairly uh, telling, I think, which is he's in the creature design shop and they're making these scale models of what are sort of the monster designs. What what will the special effects department have to make up and work with? Um, and del toro is is taking an actual like clay unfired clay model in his hands from an artist artist like a, a guy whose job it is to do this and it's so it's so cool looking it's the angel of death figuring it's yeah it's the one of the greatest monster designs ever put to film we'll talk a lot about it i think uh in the actual main episode but the in the main part uh, in the second half of this episode um, but he is physically cutting out pieces because he's like, this is, the, you know, this makes the it look too too Neanderthal like. This is this is too too uh, curved and roundy. It looks like a satellite dish. Like, and he's actually carving away pieces to like indicate to the artist what he needs to do different next time that he works on this particular subset of the of the creature. And uh, that shows you, I think hands-on pr- true proven experience how involved he is with the with the the overall design of everything and why there's this like like aaron said there's this ineffable quality of a del toro movie but when you watch it you know it's it's like obscenity like you 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 know when you're getting the the genuine article or not um and that's because he spends hours of saying uh this makeup isn't right uh the princess uh, one interesting thing here also before i think we kind of have to move into the main episode but like they had a so prince nuata in this movie played by luke goss uh who was the villain in uh blade 2 um very much mirror this movie very, very much mirrors blade 2 and uh his uh, counterpart princess nuata um originally they both had masks and there's a big section in the, the in the special features about how much work they did to get her look right and all the very specific details. And at a certain point, he's physically drawing on makeup on her. He's like, you're not getting the eyes right. And they eventually took her mask off because in screen tests, she looked like a zombie and, and he's like trying to bring out her natural beauty. But with Luke Goss, you're trying to bring out this more of this ancient sort of like stoic stone like quality. Cause he's like an unyielding guy, but with her, you want a little bit of sensit- sensitivity and softness. Cause she's sort of flexible and, that That is another example, I think, of, of who Del Toro is. It's, 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 it's the physical, technical competence of a guy who used to do everything himself because he didn't have a crew. And now that he has a crew, he can do it all himself. Um, but he wants to be able to step in and collaborate and make sure that what the the, the genius there is matched with genius here. Um, and, and that's why you're watching this movie. There's, like, not a detail out of place. Like, mm-hmm. It's, it's stuff that any producer would beat out of a out of an edit but they did not this is the moment when the little baby thing in the troll market goes <laughs> goes I'm not a baby, I'm a tumor. I'm a There's absolutely no reason I'm for that tumor. to be in the movie from yeah. a producer perspective. Cause it's only a weird thing for like us three. <laughs> like but everyone else in the audience is going, What the fuck?
2: <laughs> and but like that's that's part of and like you said though, but like that's that's one of those things where it's just such an insane amount of detail where he does an amazing job with both creatures and the actual makeup or characters of building in visually a lifetime without having to spell that out for you 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 see characters and their horns are broken off you see you see flesh and it's weathered versus shiny and nice and all these things and like he does such a crazy amazing job of building that into characters and then that gives them immediately on first look so much more depth
1: oh yeah uh, yeah yeah 100 oh, yeah. percent. uh i think we need to go let's go We gotta talk more about Hellboy 2 Alright The Golden Army just Just in case you guys got confused with a different Hellboy 2
0: You're such a beautiful freak I wish there were more just like you
1: not like all of the others and that is why I love you beautiful freak
0: beautiful freak That is why I love you beautiful freak There and give us some alternate taglines.
1: Uh the silver armory
0: That'd be a lie. Very no, I'm
1: okay. Question mark. So what I'm what I'm envisioning for the posters it says Hellboy two colon the Golden Army and then the tagline and of course smaller print usually in Helvetica font underneath it, it says Helvetica. Sil- uh yeah. You see what I did on accident. <laughs> um, the Silver Army question mark and then I guess to be a good tagline should say no please see above <laughs> wait that's not
2: right
0: um so this movie begins with a prologue that i forget literally every time making it technically a christmas movie uh, oh yeah I, I have that in my notes <laughs> uh, so
1: it do you forget my... it because young hellboy is the most terrifying cre- creature <laughs> <that> <laughs> del toro ever dreamed of it is it, uh it doesn't it's the, the Like, no offense to whoever's under that makeup, but no thank you. I think no they're thanks. going for
2: cute, but they came out with, like, buck-tooth nightmare fuel instead.
1: <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like, the there's no way the that movie, guy sure. grows
2: up to be Ron Pearl, man.
0: <laughs> so here's the deal. Young, yeah, like, baby Hellboy in the comics is actually, like, a pretty cute character. And it's, like, the point is that, like, Hellboy was a very, like, innocent uh, innocent figure and was sort of a, a blank slate and Trevor Broom <clears throat> his uh, father figure uh, after adopting him installed uh, a lot of good software in him he, he made him uh you know uh, value mankind and empathy and being and, and saving people and being a hero and um you know it's very much a story about nature versus nurture uh in a lot of ways um because when Hellboy arrived, he couldn't even speak English. It was just he was the, the, the intention was not for him to land and immediately, you know, infiltrate the U.S. government or whatever. When Hellboy landed, uh, it was he was just a blank slate. So uh, Trevor Broom is being very sweet to him on Christmas in this flashback of uh, I'm guessing it's in the 50s or 60s. Um, and. Hellboy is uh, uh, just being a rambunctious kid. He's he sort of has a baby Grinch kind of quality. Um, but just, you know, I guess it kind of like, let's if you, say if you have problems with red, green colorblindness, you could probably confuse the two. Uh,
1: he kind of has a, a good like, hey, when he asks for a second bowl of porridge, what if Oliver Twist was horribly
0: cursed by a demon? <laughs> <laughs> And it's weird because like it's weird cuz like I think if they had just not dubbed so they gave this actor this young actor weird buck teeth that aren't cute and then I'm they had to dub over that actor with another boy's voice which makes it very creepy. Yeah. Um hypothetically speaking, give Baby Hellboy a good kid actor, don't give him weird giant teeth and then um Just let the make it a baby. The
1: problem is he's fourteen. Fourteen is not a cute age. No, sorry. but it's also Del Toro. He's
2: got to do something with the teeth, eyes, or horns. He's got to do something. You got to get some fake teeth, some weird eyes, something going on. It does imply that Hellboy at some point had some (laughs)
1: orthodontics (laughs) done.
2: So there's a there's a version of Hellboy with braces. Is
1: that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean it's the it's like the 50s, right? So he's got (laughs) headgear. So the whole thing.
0: This is the headgear attached to the horns. That's what I was
1: thinking too. That's why. That's why I had to file them down for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> this wolf, I, I need to choose between my my horns and straight teeth.
0: God, and this is something that we're gonna we'll talk about in the Hellboy twenty nineteen episode. But there's a lot of like all the, there's a lot of little weird moments in the, in these movies movies that like either were already or uh, are going to become very sweet moments in the comics like the moment when Hellboy actually carves off his his horns in the comics is uh is like a very like sweet heartbreaking kind of moment um Mm -hmm. as a as a kid uh but yeah this is this is just sort of like a weird way to start the movie but as soon as it launches into the purpose of the prologue it's amazing um it's such a it's such an amazing um uh, flip From uh, horrified at Baby Hellboy to uh, this animated uh, prologue with uh, these sort of puppety-like figures uh, reenacting this war between these ancient mythological creatures, the trolls, the goblins, the elves, and then versus uh, mankind. And this was supposed to be a war fought, you know, whatever, tens of thousands of years ago. And... um, this war was supposed to be about dominance of the earth that there was the forest where the the trolls lived and the, the the forest creatures lived and then there was the cities where man lived and man encroached upon the forest to build more cities and it's going to kick off a theme in this movie that is, became weirdly common i think over the years which was to make uh the villains eco-terrorists um this movie actually just has like a lot of sympathy for the eco-terrorists um more so than I think uh you know James Bond movies do. Um uh, and this is a this is a setup for the rest of the movie because there's a golden army that this um this King uh Baylor, is that right? King Baylor, um, King of Elfland. Uh had commissioned this this building of this massive golden army. There's these unkillable robots that'll reassemble themselves, and you're seeing a vision of these these this golden army. And what I'll come back to later in the recap is like, this doesn't actually look like what they look like late in the movie, which leaves a lot of dramatic heft in the moment when they're finally revealed in the movie, because you're going, oh wow, these are terrifying. (laughs) These are huge. Um but in this little puppety kind of, of view, they crush mankind's armies and king balor uh feeling a sense of 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 remorse for the unholy terror he's wrought on the land calls a uh, a treaty with man and man decides uh to stick to the cities and the forest people stick to the forest obviously we know because of you know the state of the worlds that that treaty was not kept by man however the presupposition of this movie is that it was kept by the forest people and one of the people that's very pissed off about that as a son of King Baylor, uh, Prince Nuada, who believes that we should t- they should s- kickstart that war and uh, get the golden army back together. And in order to do that, he needs to reassemble these three pieces of this golden crown to command the army. The pieces were purposefully separated, sort of as a nuclear launch, uh, sort of a nuclear launch, uh, you know, turnkeys. Uh, that you might see where you need to have a bunch of people all with different you know nuclear footballs or nuclear keys all turning them at once in order to launch the ICBMs or whatever Um, this is supposed to be sort of like a mythological nuclear weapon an unstoppable unfeeling killing machine so we go to New York and there's uh, been an attack on a art uh, a uh, like a Sotheby's kind of deal, like an art, art, art auction um, where they're selling off uh, pieces of sculpture and anthropological finds, but one piece they're particularly selling is one piece of the crown. So Prince Nuada introduced himself to the audience and as a, basically like a terrorist attack with uh, his friend Wink, um, who's a big ogreish guy, uh, played by a fucking six foot six guy in an eight foot suit on stilts it's so cool yeah <laughs> it's so but it cool. looks so fucking amazing it looks so good there's like basically a full 30 minute segment and the special features about how cool the wink suit is because it's every actor on set being like even jeffrey tambor being like there's a person in there is he all right <laughs> like, <laughs> like everyone's just like kind of concerned like is he gonna be able to walk and then this actor just gets up on his fucking stilts and starts walking around and there's one head is like a very um uh, jaw like um and has like a lot of like uh, mouthy movements and one uh head is just for combat scenes and yada yada so
1: uh, you know what it kind of reminds me of a little bit um I like just for like oh that looks um extremely realistic it's like, it's obviously a guy in a suit, but still looks pretty amazing, um, is like all the uh, the alien henchmen from the Fifth Element. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The 1997 Fifth Element henchmen guys were pretty fucking amazing.
2: Oh, yeah. I, I think it's funny where it's like all of the gear model creatures with humans inside when you're like, is it okay? Can you walk that kind of stuff? The other thing that seems to be re- reoccurring is like. Well, can he see? And they're like, well, not really. But anyways, it's like most most of the designs seem like it's like, well, they can't really see. But like, that's fine. We'll we'll just figure it out. Yeah, we can see. I'm the director. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Doug Jones does three three characters in this. Um, while we're talking about this, because we're moving to this this scene where um, the, the the Prince Nuada and Wink unleash this terror attack of these tooth fairies, which eat all the guests of the party this auction and then uh, Hellboy Abe sapien and Liz have to go in and investigate and they fight the these tooth fairies and this really like uh incredible sequence that mix, mixes CGI and practical effects uh what, what did you all think about these tooth fairy things before I talk about Abe uh I, th- I think they're great they're, they, they look uh, great still whatever 13 years later
1: oh yeah I thought hope- they look great and they also have what I like which is <laughs> like because of the way that they are so quick and the, basically they devour things so quickly they have a creepy backstory're they're, they're goofy while still being terrifying and they allow the movie to kind of open in this um, what in most other movies would be an r-rated scene where people's fucking heads are getting like devoured on the spot and flying up but because because uh, the, the the people are getting like swarmed. By the tooth fairies, it allows them to naturally cover all the stuff that would, uh, for the most part, earn the R rating, while still leaving the uh, effect of um,
2: the the visceralness of it uh, intact. And they're Absolutely. and they somehow still manage to be cute. They, I mean, yes. like it, it, it's yes. very Guillermo del Toro's wheelhouse to take a uh, fairy tale base that is in everyday, you know, Tooth Fairy would not be something menacing if you were talking to anybody about it and then take it to its roots and try and make it creepy, but yet still is kind of adorable. Um, And then I would say if you guys didn't, it is worth going back and just watching the behind the scenes of specifically about the Tooth Fairies because they've got a lot of footage of all of the guys freaking out and acting and there nothing's happening to them. So it's just a bunch of different FBI guys spazzing out and then flipping over tables. And then like that. there's no effects going on. So I think that's kind of entertaining. The one thing that I didn't – it's just been so long since I've watched the movie. I did make a note where I was like, this really gives me uh don't be afraid of the dark feel, uh, oh, the yes. horror movie. And then I – I like made a note. I was like, look that up. I'm assuming that Guillermo del Toro was a part of it in some capacity, and I did. And he's the writer and producer of that movie. So you're like, oh, so he just he took that and then was like, I could build out an entire horror movie about. I mean, they're definitely different in that movie, but it's a similar tooth fairies are the creepy element in that movie type thing. So yeah, they also have
0: a they have a specific magnolia design feature, which is. Um, that very weird oval shaped wide smile, mm-hmm. which Magnolia uses a lot for skeletons and and uh, weird creatures that that um they're they're <laughs> their spot their smile seems like almost too tall because it's not like a thin little like line the way normal smiles are it's like a it's like a pretty sizable sort of lime shaped um and I, I I'm a big fan of of that design feature they're they're really creepy and they make this. But they're like creepy, funny, cute, scary because like they do make these crazy, awful
1: sexy, cool. yeah,'m
0: I'm, I'm, I'm doing a marketing pitch, but I've done way too much cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, now hear me out. They're gonna eat all your teeth.
1: <laughs> they're gonna cover waterfalls by TLC. Hear me out.
0: they're crazy, sexy and cool? But don't go chasing waterfalls. I've been down that river before, man.
1: Man, I told you
0: about my eight (laughs) (laughs) ex-wives.
1: They united and formed almost a legal Voltron against me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that means you have to buy my pitch today. (laughs) You have to.
1: (laughs) Anyways, you want a timeshare?
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so these... these these little guys, they're, they're they're cool. They're they're hot. <laughs> they keep it real, um, but they but they they're uh, now. I'd say they're, they're 2008. Now. They're fresh. They're fresh, but they keep uh they keep it fresh. Um they they are paired with a bunch of gross sound effects of drilling into teeth and screaming yeah. and guys being able to, unable to get them out of their clothes and out of their skin and it's just it's uh it's 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 pretty horrifying way to open the movie but um during this fight scene we find out that well Abe finds out that Liz is pregnant Liz has a new look and I feel like this is a good time to talk about Doug Jones and before we move on to Ron Perlman stuff, I feel like it's a good time to park and so talk about So, Maybe Jones here's a good time about... to pause.
1: Like are we going to rush through the recap and circle back or are we doing let's just say things as we go through?
0: Let's let's um let's let's uh listen is let's pause at, at different points uh, and then um we can we can Cause I think the plot is just very plotty and I don't want to miss a sequence. Right. Okay. That's yeah. We, that's totally fine. Uh, yeah. Cause one of the
1: things I wanted to kind of plant a flag in a little bit is that like what this movie does better than, um, than the original. And like, I, I, Peter, you were a little more forgiving than I think me and maybe Ryan on the, the Hellboy Liz romance. I think part of that is like
0: part of that is just cuz of this movie.
1: Well, yeah, well so but I think it it works great and part of that is just because they just like Liz is such a better character uh or it has a better characterization as not being the I won out and I'm sad and depressed. And I I don't mean that to sound like Clivet, like oh, well it's just it's more fun if she's having fun or some like weirdo shit like that, but like it 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 the mo- This movie as a whole understands that, okay, Hellboy being this kind of like uh, gallows comic force and having this team of kind of goofy support with their own issues is the right way to take the movie. That's the the part in Hellboy that works the, the best when they're teaming up and they're doing stuff and they're saying they're one liners. And what doesn't quite work is... When it's just full on, I'm depressed and I want out and I don't even want to live. It just it works great in some of the Hellboy comic stuff. It's not it doesn't fit so much of the tone and the design and the lightness that Del Toro does here. And so the biggest improvement I think that in in this is just the the way they make. Liz they give her such a a better stronger character to deal with she is engaged in the missions she you know is now dating hellboy but has a lot of great new hair great new haircut it's less of like the sad you know Selma Blair is not playing a weird hellboy version of her character from cruel intentions anymore she's playing (laughs) like a actual woman who is has wants and needs and uh you know and wants to be a part of what's going on like i i, I it, it really makes the whole movie come alive and makes this romance that for for reasons we discussed last time would have been incredibly creepy in the book uh does not apply here but it makes a romance the the romance really work and you love um you love the way that they they interact and care for each other and and something else and like i said earlier the the kind of stinger in this that was clearly there to set up the the third movie is it made would have made the romance or in almost like a matrix way like essential to like who saves who who's able to protect the other person and it felt like it actually would have worked really well so I mean that overall the romance and I think that's entirely because of the way they recharacterize Liz here uh, is is amazing
2: and uh, the only way that they could have elevated it to a even higher level is if they kept Myers around right if, if he was just still, Part of the group, hanging out, Agent Myers. We got to have
0: Myers back. We need
2: the love triangle. He needs to be there, man. I miss him.
0: Yeah. Well, it also, like, like I told, like, <laughs> the Myers
1: better. About, we talked about ad nauseum last time, and I'm not going to rehash it, but part <laughs> of the thing that, like, just also didn't make the, besides the love triangle aspect, like, they're not dating in the first one, like... Hellboy has, like, unrequited loves and feelings, and and Liz keeps saying, like, hey, just let me live my life and move on, and he follows her, and, like, on paper, all that stuff is incredibly gross, and I don't like it, and doing away with that uh, uh, unrequited idea of, like, well, we're both freaks. We should be together. Oh, I
2: was joking. And just making them two freaks that love each other is great. I was joking about Myers. I always uh, took it in the first one as they had some sort of history or past where they were, at least in some capacity, dating, not necessarily just Hellboy pining after her and her kind of being like.
1: Well, I, I don't think they're together. I mean, I, I took the implication that they had been dating and broke up so that Liz could try to move on with her life, which, again, none of that's a good look on paper, even yeah. if it's. It's not. It's not handled with like Gus Van Sant vibes
0: or anything. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I I I think that they finally figured out what the trick is here, and I think that yeah. part of the deal is that this movie is way more about us freaks have to stick together, and yep. part of that reason is because uh, it's, it's not just those two. It's also uh, with Abe. So Abe is like <laughs> he, he he has his own part of their friend relationship which is i think mirroring the comics it's not actually mirroring the comics but it's, it's it's mirroring that the comics has like complex relationships between these characters it's not just um you know yeah, hey did we're, abe we all gotta talk go to liz the in the
1: first movie like it was all hellboys friends with abe and hellboys friends with liz and i think uh, combining them into a real family works wonders
0: yeah and abe is very compassionate for liz and wants to take care of her And in this, uh, Doug Jones is not only doing the physical performance, but Doug Jones is also doing the voice, um, which is David Hyde Pierce, um, a real mensch, um, was being positioned to, to even come back for the animated Hellboy, uh, movies. He refused again. He didn't go to the premiere for the Hellboy movie. Um, he didn't come back for this one. Um, he wanted doug jones to get his proper due he was like why am i here doug jones is sitting in makeup for like fucking three hours every morning and two hours at night every time he has to shoot a scene even if the scene is scene is 18 seconds long like can we please for the love of god just like give him credit and david i pierce just like kind of disowned the project but like with a blessing which i think is yeah it's a good it's a good uh it's a good guy move so Doug Jones does. But he's like, a, but I
1: will be in the amazing transparent head as we talked about
0: last Yes. Week. And then he comes back for, yes, the amazing screw on head. Screw uh, on head. Uh, which is which is funny. Um, Doug Jones does three characters, I believe, in this. He does a member of the royal court um, for Prince Nuada, which was, you know, one day in, in makeup, um, but still it's very cool. And then he also does. Uh, The Angel of Death, which we'll talk about later, but the Angel of Death is a massive prosthetic. It has wings, wings that weighed, you know, 45 pounds each, I think. And he had to be lifted on to uh, with uh, strings as if he was doing a special effects shot just to stand up. He couldn't see anything except for there's a crack in the facade of the face. Uh, that was the only way he could sort of see out of one eye, but as much as you could see out of a crack, right? Um, he could see someone that's directly in front of him, but he had no peripheral vision. Um, and he had to be guided through every step and del Toro had to be just off screen, kind of guiding him through his lines and making sure that he had proper eye lines because like, (laughs) He's wearing a fucking, like, 16-inch tall prosthetic head with a fake chin and fake teeth, all that. Like, it comes out to be, like, a foot tall, maybe taller. Oh. Um, and Doug Jones is doing serious work here, and you can tell he's getting more comfortable, particularly with Abe Sapien makeup.
2: It's, it's crazy. I, I watched the, that specific behind-the-scenes right before we started. So the wings, backpack, all that stuff total, I think they said was 40, 45 pounds. And then it did have a support line, but they said that uh, Doug Jones was able to support the backpack on his own if needed. But I doubt for however long of, you know, the shoots are, I mean, you could say, yeah, throw a 45 pound backpack on me, but that's after hours of makeup while you're wearing all of these different things. And then also hours of shooting. You're like, yeah, no, I mean that, that had to be, even if you're the best sport and that's your job and you love what you do, like at the end of the day, it, it's also not like, I mean, he is uh, incredibly talented, but part of his appeal for, you know, the fawn and, uh pans and as the angel of death is is he's gangly, he's skinny, he can he can be all these characters that are otherworldly. So it's not like he's a you know heavy lifting anything this or that like he's not he's not going on his off days and squatting and benching and it's i mean, I mean it's got to take a serious toll to even lug around that backpack with support with all of these things also while doing it blind and all, like i think it's crazy and he does such an amazing job it seems effortless in the final product
1: yeah i do you guys think doug jones is happy yeah
2: yeah <laughs>
0: he's so he's such a like a gleeful nerd when he's like no he seems like, so
2: chipper it's crazy
0: it, it's it, it is, is it's wild to me that anybody is able to perform after getting up at like 2 or 3 a.m to like fucking go uh go into like the makeup guys can at least go sleep between shoots and before they have their two-hour makeup takeoff sessions but t- but doug jones has to sit there make sure do tests to make sure that he has proper movement um, like, he can't just sleep the whole time. Like, he's gotta we, be there. We,
1: we didn't talk about this last week, but do you think when he recorded his lines for the animated movies that he, like, was in full makeup? Just to really... Maybe it's, like, a, a fetish or something kinda sick and... Uh, not fetishes are sick, but maybe him specifically
0: it is. It, it's gross when he does it, though. Yes. It's, yeah. Yeah. Like,
1: it's, of course it's okay to to get off but because you put on 80 pounds of makeup but he does it and he thinks about
0: yeah we don't want to kink uh, shame, part, we don't part want to part shame just doug jones specific kink because it's very exploitative that every it's, time well it's not even shaming him
1: it's that it's it is tearing apart his family because all of his children have a disassociated well and, identity disorder <laughs> because every day he came home looking different uh it and. Brian, my guess is you have not seen Star Trek Discovery. Peter, you're not allowed to yet. We're not
0: there yet. <laughs> it's, um, it's... I follow the but, rules.
1: But Doug uh, Doug Jones is amazing. He a, he's a regular cast member on the show, and he's amazing. But they still give him extremely heavy makeup. Um, they the wear every episode. It's like, okay, okay, regular cast but You can be on a Star Trek, but you know...
2: You don't get to just be one of the guys. Yes. We're not just popping a red shirt on you. You're not just a crew member.
1: Oh, it's going to be a complicated design. We're doing hand stuff.
0: (laughs) What about mouth stuff?
1: Well, like Worf, you know, he just, like, he had a lot of makeup, (laughs) but his hands are just. Oh, so
0: Worf got head.
2: Yeah. Wharf got head stuff. No hand stuff. No hand stuff, but he did get plenty of head head stuff.
1: Yeah, Doug got head and hand stuff, mm-hmm. and I th- actually this is how it isn't true. You should feet probably stuff. get some
0: hand stuff with your head. No, he's got feet stuff, guys. Well, that's kind of advanced, I think.
2: Well, and with with what well, is the future? With teeth, eyes, and horns for Guillermo del Toro. It's like you got you got hand stuff, mouth stuff, and he's horny, so it's great, super. <laughs> We're not going to talk about an hour of this movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, wait. let's So where are we in this movie? We're still at the beginning. Uh, two- so so, so
1: the, hold on. The other thing really quickly that he knocks out that I think was actually kind of weighing down the first movie a little is that the comics were very smart to get rid of. Is not the idea that Hellboy is like this mythical secret that they're trying to keep under wraps. Like Hellboy. Everyone knows who Hellboy is from the 50s. Hellboy feeling like he should be a part of the world but scared of what society would think added, again, a layer of darkness that this movie understands. I think maybe, like, we can remove that uh, from the proceedings. And they do that by after they defeat all the Tooth Fairies, Hellboy very purposely gets himself blown out a window where he knows a bunch of reporters are so he uh, can reveal himself to the public as uh, existing, even though uh, this is partially because of Manning. (laughs) He is the
0: worst-kept secret uh, of all time. And
1: all – do you want to talk a little Jeffrey Tambor? Do you want to yeah, get let's some depressant stuff way. the way? Jeffrey
0: Tambor is incredibly funny in this movie. However, Jeffrey Tambor is uh, not a good person in real life, so it uh, uh,
2: may be a little uncomfortable. Well, I I, I also think – sorry, just because the point you were just making. I think it's a weird gear shift in like three-fourths of the way in where all of a sudden – they do, uh, after a major battle, feel like it is as if uh, Hellboy is some anomaly again. For, like, briefly, I understand that he's still, you know, abnormal, whatever, but I feel like they do a good job at the beginning to be like, okay, like you said, he's the worst kept secret, and then all of a sudden, after a large battle, you know, about three quarters away, the and they're like, they pretend like, who who is this guy? This guy's the bad guy, right? Oh, but when you're like, no, what? I thought we already did that. I thought we were kind of established... Yeah, I mean, people people get who he is, at least to a certain degree now, like, that kind of stuff.
1: Well, he walks down the street, and then they just start making fun hours. of him for being ugly. Like, no one's, like, scared or shocked. They're just like, you look
2: like an idiot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like, as yeah, he walks Yeah, I know through, I'm ugly. The, those opening scenes with Tambor where where he is, like, just completely, has completely lost control of the operation without Broom around. And he's, like, he, and, and just, like, in that great... Lying to him in this, like, are are you sure you're trying to, like, keep everything under wraps? Like, yes, yes. He's like, but you posed for pictures. Like, it was an accident. Didn't know they were there. Like, and he's like, wait, just promise me. Promise me. Like, that you're going to keep it under wraps. And just that huge smile of, like, oh, don't worry about me. I, <laughs> I am going to make, I'm going to double keep it. I forget exactly what he says. Maybe I wrote it down. But it's a great line with just, I did not where he's like – I did write it down because he's like, I'm going to be – I'm going to be so, – like a shadow. Like a shadow in the night. <laughs> <laughs> Just like laying it on so thick. It's it's great. And like even though, yeah, Tambor sucks, there's a reason why all of us uh, loved him on uh, Arrested Development and other things before those allegations. Like he is – or on uh, Larry Sanders' show or a bunch of other things. He's a very funny man that uh, I wish was not in this movie <laughs>
0: yeah yeah i uh yeah tom Tom, man it's it I, I still it's a little weird to make tom manning just this like whiner bureaucrat but you know it adds a comedic element to these movies that are much sillier and tom manning in the comic books is literally nothing um i think he's he's just like uh i make sure you guys get funding from the government and then ele- eventually from the un and you're like thanks thanks tom He's just a guy in a suit. At least making him a character, I think, is a a move. Um, Hellboy is still living in, like, a vault. Um, He's still supposedly, like, kind of under wraps. um, But, you know, clearly not under wraps. And I think the idea of Hellboy out in the public creates a a, 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 it's just more interesting for this particular world right like hey but you get to see jimmy kimmel doing
1: some riffs right
0: yeah there's no the the reason is because there's no secret identities here there's no no spider-man peter parker bullshit it's just like his identity is his identity is his identity and and one of the best parts of the especially like later on uh hellboy stuff is um later on bprd stuff in particular is people just being like oh you're ape sapien i saw you on the news doing something um, that's pretty cool anyways so we got this weird fucked up monster can you do anything yeah. about it are you just going to keep walking on through like that's <laughs> that's kind of like one of my favorite things about the comic books is that like the world is so weird that eventually even like a guy in a podunk town in in you know rural texas is like yeah i mean Sure, it's a little startling to see you walk up to the house, but well, I guess if you're here, we I gotta point you to where our weird freak monster is. You have to kill. Yeah, uh, I really like they dispense
1: with that in the comics uh, immediately. There's there's no everyone knows who Hellboy is, and if anything, they're like everyone knowing who they are becomes a liability in the in the later later quarter of uh, BPRD stuff. So.
0: Uh, yes. So, um, what I was gonna say is we're we're moving along. Uh, Prince Nuada uh, moves to the family court uh, to present to his father. Basically, that he's a uh, he's starting this war. Um, he's he's kicking off the war. His sister does not approve. His father does not approve. His father gives him one last chance, and he says the the verdict is death. And the the court is this really gorgeous golden designed. Uh, you know it's, it's, it's basically the troll people, as we'll see in the troll market the 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 forest people have been pushed underground because mankind is, has co-opted <laughs> every inch of the earth um they've been pushed underground, they're now sort of sewer d- dwelling and they live under under our cities, and But
1: they're like, yeah it's it's better than war, right yeah, like.
0: so they're they're living in these like um you know there's these sewer shafts and such, and there's this sort of grand hall. And in this grand hall, there's these awesome, just these fantastic looking uh, royal guards that are bit, They look like something out of Tarsem's uh, The Fall. That's what it reminded me of. They're, they're sort of like part horse, part... Part pyramid head from Silent Hill, but part Uh um, just these big these big swordsman guys, and they're rad looking in the. You think Toro's whining noises when they get beheaded because Nuada beheads a lot of them.
2: My my uh, not actual Irk or problem, but I did make a note of it. I like that when he walks up to the corridor, over they're like, it it makes sense for fleshing out his character as a threat but it's like oh no weapons and later on you know it shows that he doesn't need to have his weapons on him to be a true yeah. threat but i love the idea of like no weapons he's like okay cool but i'm gonna bring my sidekick wink here you know a well-known just brute in our society who's got just a weaponized massive fist whatever and they're just like well yeah no he can go that's fine that's well, no you can't no take away here. His prosthetic here. No problems like, here. I mean, give me your weapons. But like that guy, that guy who's just a walking weapon. Yeah, he can go in with you. That's fine. It'd be no it be
0: pretty ableist for them to take away his arm. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, they. But yeah, they 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 take over the royal court and this kicks off this plot wherein um the royal princess is running away and she runs away to the troll market uh, or sort of through the troll market. Let's say. And uh, Prince is in pursuit because she has the, the third piece of the crown. She's looking for assistance where she can get it. And Wink and Nuada are in, uh, Prince Nuada are in pursuit. Uh, so Prince Nuada is played by uh, Luke Goss, the Goss Bros. And I love him in this, and I love him in Blade 2. He adds this, this, this theatricality um that we discussed in Blade Two. He has this theatricality, uh, that makes everything feel kind of Shakespearean, especially when he kills his own father, um, and he's hunting down his own sister. Like it it it, it sort of feels uh grander than life, um, because it's this sort of royal struggle. Um, but it's not it feels uh it feels sort of fable like also in another sense, because it, it it's very um Iconographic, like the idea of like there's princes and kings and uh you know there's a big weapon and and this guy is 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 has like a very clean look that sort of matches his sisters it's this very white kind of pure almost like dead uh corpse like whiteness
2: yeah and um, i and i agree i think that uh shakespearean hits it you know hits the nail right on the head He he does a great job of embodying royal entitlement like he, he just it, he it, i think it's a great portrayal of that i think you know other actors or whatnot could have would have played it differently but there is a certain cadence and swagger to him where it, it feels like you're like oh okay yeah no this is a prince of years and years who's been waiting for his time to take the throne, not not out of anger, even though that's part of what's fueling him, but just because he thinks that that's what's deserved and what his people deserve.
0: Yeah, and I think that's also a Blade Two parallel where, like, <laughs> he's like, uh, I was born into... I was born into this, this bullshit, and now I'm going to own it. I'm going to take our destiny in our hands, and I'm going to take our people forward, and you're either with me, Father, or you're not. He says Father a lot, which also adds to the sort of, you know, um, trash Shakespeare approach. Really, really a big fan of that. Uh, Luke Goss is really good at that sort of like trash Shakespeare yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's, yeah, he
1: doesn't like his father in most movies.
0: (laughs) I mean, I haven't seen the, the, the Goss bros, uh, documentary. Um, but I imagine, um, they also hate their dad. I'm just gonna flip a coin on that one. Uh, Well, and,
2: and it, it runs into it again where it's, there's a lot of father and son stuff. That's part of the reason why there was the, the weird, you know, arguably weird opening scene with Hellboy and uh brahm because then it shows that he's got a strong father figure there's obviously the liz being pregnant there's as you mentioned earlier the i'm not a baby i'm a tumor like there's a lot of baby jokes father stuff uh you know son and father jokes all these various things that kind of continually come up again and again whether it's a a comedic line or actual dynamics with villains or heroes or everything in between yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I I really like that. Del Toro
1: was listening to a lot of Everclear at the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I
0: am a big yeah, I'm a big fan of of that, and I think that as we push f- more towards uh, we get to the troll market sequence. Uh, I'm gonna have to use some uh, shorthand to speed things up, but um, so I'm gonna have to use some shorthand to speed things up here. Um, but uh, d- d- there's a new member of the team. Uh, After uh, uh, Hellboy gets outed, um, they bring in a big staple in the comics, Krauss, um, who sort of resembles Krauss in the comics, I think. Um, A little.
1: Krauss in the comics is not in charge, but holy shit, do I actually really love this portrayal. It's a good Um,
0: portrayal. I think that Krauss in some of the later comics becomes more of like a BPRD company man and is like super loyal and like almost brutal in his tactics. But like Krauss is also super empathetic. And uh, has has a good sense of like I need to maintain the morale on this team. And then as the comics go on, he has like his own desires and wants. And this he's just sort of it's just the company man thing. Like uh, I'm gonna I'm going to enact rig- rigorous uh, rigorous uh, you know attention to the the com- chain of command
2: here. He's uh, he's not- the exact opposite force of Hellboy. He's yes. he, yeah. he's rules and order and what the company wants and Hellboy is, you know, destructive, uh, I don't know, renegade rogue type. I'll do what I want type thing. So that's that's they set up that dynamic really well and they bounce off each other really well. And he's, like, a good manager, actually. Like, he tries to bond with everyone on their level, and
0: Hellboy, like, absolutely refuses to bond with him. And so Krauss is just like, all right, all you're getting is tough guy shit, because that's all I, I can offer you. Like, this is how the team needs to work. And he, like, he works well with Liz. Abe loves him. Like, he kind of kind of fits in well. There's a moment where Hellboy gets frustrated with him later, and Hellboy, it's like a pure comedic sequence. Hellboy's really uh, mad because his relationship with Liz is not going well. And he accidentally breaks krause's dome and so krause is a ectoplasmic ghost presence that's being contained inside a suit that allows (laughs) him to like actually manipulate objects because a ghost can't really pick up objects so um he becomes a member of the team uh by being able to manipulate objects he also has the ability to open up a little finger and uh, uh drain his spirit into dead bodies and uh bring them to life which is some of the coolest shit in the comics Some of that shit in, like, the BPRD um, runs, and particularly Hell on Earth, like, the Russia stuff is, like, so sick. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because he can just, like, take command of a body. It's rad. Um, So Krauss takes takes control of a little tooth fairy thing at one point. But anyway, so Hellboy breaks his dome um, when he's pissed at him, and he's, like, trying to apologize to him. And then... Krauss beats the shit out of him with these lockers flapping back and forth because they're in a locker room and it's actually like a really funny comedy sequence because Ron Perlman is essentially acting against I'm guessing guys pulling strings to open up lockers is is that probably what's happening
2: Uh, yeah I think yeah
0: (laughs) it's so fucking funny he's getting banged as soon as he's ready to hold hold the locker closed he gets banged from the back of the head it's so good (laughs) I love, too, that it's
1: um, Seth MacFarlane voiced them. Mm-hmm. Right. And in 2008, I-, I will admit that was not as uh, eye-rolling of a premise as it was to be like, oh, yeah, Seth MacFarlane voiced them. But it's important to remember, like, Seth MacFarlane is a talented person who has made just absolute fucking garbage <laughs> uh, from, a like, a showrunner and a writer perspective and from a movie perspective and stuff like that. But, like, he's not, as a person, unfunny. And, like, his portrayal of Krause here uh, really leans into that kind of, like, hyped-up genius energy. And the fact that, like, one of the things I really love about that fight is in a lesser, less interesting movie and portrayal, the idea of a guy like Hellboy picking a fight with Krause would lead to, like... Uh, Expulsion or some sort of like disciplinary action, but instead he just laughs at like how much he's been underestimated and does like this fun, (laughs) goofy locker performance. And when he leaves, it's not like you know you're fired. It's like hopefully that proved my point.
2: And then he does a smoky (laughs) man walk away. And I agree that in in a lesser movie, it would be that or and also the the fight itself. The like like you're saying the the locker doors hitting him and stuff is such a this this movie does a good job of harnessing certain almost buddy cop feel in the in the right way without necessarily having that specific setup of two people bouncing off each other. But like that we're we're And without
0: the misogyny and homophobia that usually comes with those movies. Yes.
2: But in a lesser movie he would have he would have broken his dome, he would have been I'm a smoke man, Hellboy would have tried to punch him and and he would have been able to, you know, take over Hellboy's body and oh something like that, whatever. And it's like, no, it's just a funny like he Himself never strikes Hellboy, but still kind of, you know, roughs him up in a goofy way, in a demoralizing, kind of silly way. And then, like you says, just kind of walks away and he's like, all right, I hope hope we we cleared that up. Don't have to do that again, right? Okay, anyways, blah, blah, blah. Like, and goes about his day. I'm back. Yeah, he's still singularly like
1: focused and obsessed with what he he wants to focus on. And, I think it speaks to this movie as a whole, understanding again I I mentioned it so many times, but this is a really good example of this like there's some there's some heavy theming that comes into play later in the movie that really works for it. We don't need everything to be weight if we're going to keep things light. Mm-hmm. So the clash between Krauss and Hellboy is not played for laughs conceptually because it has deeper meanings. But it's played with a lightness of touch that doesn't weigh down the movie with drama or stakes that it doesn't need to have when there's already going to be enough drama and stakes to, like, whet your appetite for a third act.
2: Yes, and while avoiding the cliche stuff of, you know, like, rules are rules or you're going to listen to me now, something like that. Like, it's a very – it does a very natural job of, like you said, incorporating – What sounds like silliness on paper, but doesn't—it it it is funny, but does not play so heavily comedically. And again, I think it's really well done by Seth MacFarlane as somebody who who could have easily gone and hammed it up, you know, based off of other stuff. But like you said, he's a very talented person and does not come off as a Seth MacFarlane character during any or any of the movie. But specifically, this scene, I think, is kind of the goofiest and would have been the most open for that kind of over-the-top nonsense.
1: Sorry, really quickly because you mentioned the buddy cop thing I think this would be the moment where Hellboy like in a, in a less movie or a movie that decides everything needs to have dramatic weight or plot machinations this would have been the moment where Hellboy is either forced to or voluntarily is so angry that he throws down his badge and his gun and quits mm-hmm. right because my new boss doesn't respect me instead this movie realizes like that would be unnecessary for where we want to take it but they still have that moment at the end of the movie, when they all quit, including Krauss. And it's more of a joke of like, you know what? Just never mind.
2: And I do like we, that Krauss just goes, like, he's like, oh, they can't just quit. Can they? I think they just did. Like, he doesn't, he's just like, all right, yeah. cool.
1: Yeah, it still uses that buddy cop, uh, by the book boss uh, dynamic to make up a, a funny punchline as opposed to adding a dramatic weight that would usually get resolved shortly thereafter.
2: And,
0: and I want to talk really briefly while we're talking about the sort of Kraus segment in the middle, um, because he, he just becomes part of the team really quickly. They do a lot of bonding really quickly. Um, there's also a segment in the middle that, that follows that, which is Hellboy and uh, Liz are broken up and he's heartsick, and Hellboy gets Abe drunk uh, and Abe is like, I don't even know if I'm I can have booze and Abe is in love with uh Princess Nuada and we need to we'll, we'll need to double double back to uh kind of how they met in just a moment but I just want to commend the movie for having this moment in the middle where there's the kraus fight and there's the sequence where hellboy and Abe Sapien get drunk and they listen to Barry Manilow that's like one of my favorite se- sequences yeah. in movies ever cuz it's just two guys in costume just fucking around and uh, also just I mentioned it last week but I got to mention it again the first movie is Bud Light. Like, it gets you where you need to go, but it's not, you know, it's not uh, particularly special. But, like, this movie is Takate. Like, that's full of character, and it's like a... It's a, it's, I, it's a, it's a thing. I um, love... Movie, I, they're all they're drinking six-packs of Takate, and, and they're actually drinking them by the six-pack, and they're clearly like, they're like, shh, don't wake her up.
2: And I love, I love that scene. It's so amazing, but I also think that the the bing bang boom of a couple lines in there are great where it's he's like you you know you need a drink and he goes what are you listening to and he talks about he says the song title out what whatever it is is you know I'm, I'm a sad boy I'm lonely whatever the actual song title is he goes and I'm gonna need to get drunk for this too like it, it, it's clearly Hellboy was already planning on getting drunk you need that but I do like that he still kind of shields himself under the guise of like oh this is how we're doing it well then I'm, I'm definitely gonna need to get plastered if this is how we're gonna be be heartsick like this is yeah, not normally is, how I do it.
0: And this is how this is this is Hellboy's character especially as the comics go go on is that Hellboy um because he's kind of torn between worlds um he does just have a jag in the middle of this where he just like goes off and gets drunk in Mexico. And then he goes off and gets drunk with ghosts. Like he has these jags that are, that's very much about Hellboy being a sort of sad detective, Um, which I do do not think Hellboy 2019 understood fucking at all. Um, But this, this movie kind of gets it where he's just sort of like, he kind of revels in this sort of melancholy um, but this is like a funny sequence in the middle of the movie to sort of break up all the 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 violence and the and the chaos uh, before it moves on to the to the third act. But let's talk about the troll market. So they're looking for yeah. Prince Nuada, and they go to the best sequence in the movie. This is also something that uh, I for years have been touting as like this is the best practical effects showcase we've had since I don't know the '80s. Like this is. This is, this is something that um, is as impressive uh, a- as anything we've seen in the new Star Wars movies in terms of uh, practical effects, which is fucking insane because those movies have unlimited budgets. Um, yeah. This is something that shows Del Toro truly as is, it, all of his bag of tricks is coming out. He's fucking around with every trick he's got. He's basically what they did for the troll market is they went, they... To an old... Uh, I think it's a, like a limestone quarry cave. Like mm-hmm. a limestone cave. And they built an actual troll market in there. Pieces of it are CGI. Pieces of it are like... The camera goes right. And you're looking at the same street. But you're looking at it from a different angle. So it doesn't feel like the same street. Um, it's, but a, almost all of it is practically built. With real houses. Strange details that were fine crafted. And... I'm gonna say fifty to seventy percent of the monsters are just people walking around in costume. There's a yeah, few yeah. monsters to fill out the crowd that are CGI, but most of them are just motherfuckers that sat in makeup for hours.
2: Well, and the other part that I thought was really neat, because I, I was watching the same behind the scenes stuff, was I I would have never picked up on and it totally makes sense and again goes goes again that we're hammering the same thing of just so many details, so thorough, was that uh the production designer, I believe, said was like, "Oh, there's there. They used forced perspective during that too. So they had, you know, only however much length. So then they would build what looked like more buildings in the background, and then they just stacked people and used smaller and smaller people as as they got further back. So it looked like it went on forever when really it didn't at all. But like that that kind of stuff where." you'd never guess it It, like but but that brings the troll market to life because it feels like it goes on forever it feels like a true city it's got its own style and culture and it just oozes it and it's amazing it's so fun to be in that uh scene i love i love that environment it's great it's hard to not watch something like this
1: and just go this was made 13 years ago um not the movies from 13 years ago, like, look like a CGI heavy movie from 1996 looks or something like that. But it is just like, the, the, you know, I I bought the 4K for this. I'm watching on a projector and everything is just seamless. Not just seamless from a, um, a perspective of this look good for 2008, but like. In an era where special effects that you just saw three years ago, you watch and you go, oh, this kind of looks like shit. (laughs) Like, have you watched Ant-Man? The de-aging stuff in there that blew my fucking mind is like, oh, this doesn't look that
2: good. You can tell that that's some weird. My favorite example is the uh, Matrix Reloaded. There was, like, heavy CGI where it's not any actual actors, that kind of stuff. And I remember at the time being like, oh, my God, that's crazy. You go back now and you're like, oh, this looks like like a ps2 video game You're like yeah no i'm i'm very aware that it's pure cgi like it, through and through and then you've got you know this movie that looks great it looks so crisp during everything i mean what this movie does is it's just like
0: the cantina scene in the original star wars it feels tactile it feels like you can walk up and take a seat and smoke some hookah and and eat a human brain or whatever the fuck they're doing like they're they're you could go up and touch any of these objects and the movie invites you to do that. And one of the ways they invite you to do that is there's fight sequences and chases in this sequence where there's crowds and there's people bumping into each other and people breathing on each other. And it's not just about everyone jammed in together, but it's that it's that the space feels like a space that living things are existing in and trying to, they're pushing past Hellboy because they're not in the Hellboy movie. They're in the get your fucking food for your kids that day movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, and, uh, the, the, there's a fight sequence wherein Wink gets killed um, because Wink is beating the shit out of Abe, and then Princess Nuada is running out of the sequence because Princess Nuada and Abe fall in love at first sight. Which is, it's fine. It's just a, it's a pretty standard sort of two freaks kind of falling in love kind of thing. Yeah, I, I,
1: I thought, I thought playing Radiohead's "Creep" when their eyes locked uh,
2: was was hitting it a little too hard. Oh, there are a couple perfect song choices that that really hit. I, that, that's like a personal uh, pet peeve of mine is when...
1: Well, first of all, they don't actually play Creep. That was just a bad... No,
2: thing. no, no, I know, but no, no, but there there are other actual song choices in the movie where it's like, it, it just talks about like, it, the words in the song are actual oh, like freaks and creep, whatever, they do you know I mean? play. they uh, do
1: play the eels' uh, beautiful freak when he's taking
2: <laughs> yeah Yeah. Um, in the first movie, they
0: play Red Right Hand when he's, uh, being, mm-hmm. when Hellboy's being introduced, which uh, I, I think was the... Yeah, the yeah. first movie that they played Red Right Hand when Hellboy's being introduced, and I think it's—I just a uh, picture Del Toro laughing, laughing a lot.
2: There are plenty of different worlds in, in movies and whatever that you're like, man, I, I'd love to visit there. I want to go there, but but the Troll Market, like you said, it has a it has a realness, it has a sense of uh, it feels more tangible it feels like somewhere like you said you're just you're bumping into people people are breathing on you it feels like somewhere where i should be able to pick up and go visit and that i think that that's phenomenal uh when there is not a human in sight there's not it, it, there's no comfortable or familiar architecture there's no there's nothing to lean. what the hell there's no, nothing to like lean on um does, does someone own a bird? I know. I was like, "What, what just happened?" Um, Sorry. Wait, what was that?
0: <laughs> Sorry. No, no, you're fine. Um, Peter, did you buy a bird? <laughs> no. Uh, I was I was sent. A, did you kill
2: your dog? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I was trying. I was trying to silence my phone, and I was sent a video into our uh, the group chat I have <laughs> with my brother and his friends. <laughs> and I, so What's I your ringtone what for I, that? Can we? I don't know what it is because I, I don't notice because I immediately went, ooh, <laughs> I thought it, I thought their... that
2: was a Star Trek thing, right? Or uh, Star the Wars squawk? The... Possibly. I, I, I thought, don't know. I got scared. I think it's a Star Wars noise, if I'm being completely <laughs> honest. I think it's a R2D2 like on a speeder type noise.
0: Oh, that's possible.
2: Um but what I was actually gonna also ask you guys because I was trying to get back to the troll market was is, are, with, the, with everybody walking around, there are so many different creatures and stuff. Are any of them references or nods to actual comic book characters or is nothing it nothing that like, is everything moving so that fast that, to yeah, I, 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 that's what I figured just because I, I mean, if Guillermo del Toro has the chance to make a bunch of creatures in, in whatever way he feels like it, it's cool to build in nods, but I would assume that that's where he's like, no, this is, this is a blank canvas. I just want to build out a bunch of weird looking things
0: nothing i caught in particular yeah. but uh you know it's it's certainly possible i was bought watch- i watched that scene twice and i just got swept up in looking at exactly what del toro wanted me to look at both times like it's like it's amazing how he's just hiding any he's hiding the fact that the, this is just shot inside a fucking like limestone like, cave. like, it's not a huge space. It's a huge space to decorate, but, like, this is not an actual, you know, massive, bizarre. Um, I was guided the entire time in this troll market sequence just to wherever Del Toro wanted me to look. And then when I slowed it down in a second watch, I was able to catch some monsters. But, no, I, I can guarantee you, because Mignola was also there designing monsters, that they threw in a bunch of references. But I didn't catch anything. My guess is, I mean, like you said, probably Del Toro just... Uh,
1: Bebopping and
0: scatting around. <laughs> yeah, it's like jazz, except for every one of his ideas takes dozens of hours <laughs> to implement. It's,
1: it's, all the, it's all the notes you laboriously don't play over many hours in a makeup chair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah i i but yeah so moving along from the troll market unfortunately uh so princess nuata is taken into protective custody of the bprd to get her away from her brother and uh, oh wink wink dies in a rather badass way where uh wink yeah. uh wink and hellboy are fighting and at one point wink's metal hand gets crushed by hellboy's stone hand and, and Wink is just, like, whining to Hellboy about he fucked up his hand, basically, but non, not non-verbally, but in a language that's not a real language. And uh, Hellboy is like, just we can stop this fight now, and then Wink throws his chain hand at a massive grinding sort of cog- spindly thing and he gets trapped between these two wheels and hellboy just kind of flicks on the chain he's just like sorry buddy I you love tried it. to he, kill he me sh-
2: <laughs> he strums it he checks that it's taut, but again all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. he brings in like another comedic element and it also plays into uh the very final scene because it it later hellboy goes between cogs but it's very brief and you know he's not dead but it's like oh we, yeah. we've already seen a another major character die that in a very similar fashion. Um, So I do think that that, that was purposefully mirroring uh, Wink's death.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is also just Del Toro building actual sets with actual big devices. Um, Obviously it's not a really, uh, you know, massive gear that could kill somebody, but there is an actual piece of of machinery there that you can, you can, you know, uh, look at. Um, and similar to the final flight in the movie, um, there's there were actual gears that special effects um, that, uh, that uh, stunt coordinators yeah. were dancing and bopping around and hiding within like that's just Del Toro building actual infrastructure around him. It's pretty incredible. But um, Gilmore Del Toro loves gear. He loves, he loves ge- gear. <laughs> <laughs> gear um gear Delmo Toro. <laughs> oh my gosh i
1: think you're onto something
0: yeah i am hold um, on a second here. so anyways uh they go back to the they go back to the old bprd they they have the sequence with hellboy and uh and uh, kraus hellboy and Abe get drunk hellboy is drunk and uh prince Nuada comes into the compound to kill um to uh to take back his 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 princess to take back his piece of the the crown and he's interrupted by Hellboy and Abe trying to defend her. And we discover two things in this sequence. One is that, uh, princess Nuada and Prince Nuada are tied together. Their fates are tied together. If there's a slash on her cheek or there's a slash on her cheek, it shows on his cheek. If there's a, uh, if he gets stabbed in the stomach, she gets stabbed in the stomach. Um, and it's, a they're they're true twins um and so there's a fight be- a drunken fight between hellboy and Nuada, and hellboy uh not only loses but he gets a piece of uh his spear that he breaks off uh, tapped into him um which means that that spear is every time they try and extract it will just dip deeper and so at a certain point, they just decide like we have to go. We have to go find Nuada and get him to take the shit out of him. So they go to Ireland to try and find um, the location of the Golden Army because now Nuada has all three pieces of the crowns. He's ready to go, and we're moved it. We are now in the third act. Nuada is uh, off getting his Golden Army ready, and Hellboy, Abe, um, Krause... And Liz are all uh on this Irish island. Uh, you know, it's near the Giant's Causeway, and they're trying to find the entrance to the Golden Army. And the they end up running into this is the guy who created the Golden Army, right?
2: The Goblin Cart Man. Yeah, I have no idea. I just thought he was a I, Goblin th- Cart Man.
0: I'm ninety five percent sure this is because he talks about getting his legs blown off in the furnace. Um, from, from, uh, you know, heating up the golden army. And, um, also he has the same look, these like short little horns as the, the little guy that offered, uh, King Balor to burn it off. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's him. Um, anyways, so this, this guy in a cart is basically like, uh, he's like a, a, a true troll or goblin figure that he just wants that metal. He wants the metal from Hellboy's, uh, spear tip. And they're like, you can't have him. You can't have it. Like, it's it's in him. We can't take it out. And he's like, oh, I know someone who can get that for me. Um, So he takes them to the Angel of Death. Um, just a real casual place to take your new friends. And this is a chamber lit by candlelight. And it's semicircular, gorgeous. The only people who are allowed in the chamber are Hellboy and Liz. The Angel of Death, played by Doug Jones, is a massive winged creature almost like and almost like a peacock has eyes actual eyes though not fake eyes surrounding the like periphery of the wings and uh, a massive sort of moon-shaped head um with these old teeth and uh is coded as a woman like very delicate sort of flowery sort of hand
2: movements yeah there's definitely um, a level of uh, androgyny yeah
0: sure. yeah and it's Doug Jones who's talking about in the interviews basically or not in the you know the the extras basically talking about um so I'll be playing a woman, and I'm going to try and play up whatever inner woman is in Doug Jones, and um, he's he's really working on 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 that, and it's it, in such a way that like I didn't know until I saw the making of feature that that was Doug Jones. I assume pretty incredible. I assume I that you
2: know. had me. Oh, it's the the actual uh, angel of death creature is is amazing. It also plays really well with the. I don't know if it's truly biblical depiction of angels or whatnot, but there's some, I think it is biblical text, but it's angels are supposed to be multi-winged, like not people with wings. They're supposed to be like multi-winged, multi-eyed, all that kind of stuff. And it's really blended well. I do think that this one, it's which is insane for a movie that's Hellboy and Hellboy 2. I do think that the... Religious and, you know, religious iconography and themes seem to be much heavier in this one than in the first. Even with just the casual uses of crosses on characters and in backgrounds and all these things and angels and vague Jesus imagery, even compared to Hellboy. It is, it is interesting. And then also, you know, culminates to this. Just absolutely insane set piece with this gorgeous, terrifying, but non-threatening monster who who does seem to be still playing by their rules. Like he even the the, I, I keep saying he even though it seems the angel of death even says to Liz where it's like he's like, I can save him but you have to decide that. And she's like, well, oh, he's like, you, you have to, deci- again, I I mean, I could do that right now, but you have to decide that. Like I'm, there's destiny at, at play here, but you've got a, a part and you've got to push this button and pull that trigger. And you're essentially guaranteeing that Hellboy lives to arguably fulfill his destiny, which is, you know, bring, hell on earth or destroy humanity or whatever that is
1: yeah that whole part is like like i said that's the part that i think really sets up potentially where they could have gone right mm-hmm. because it still has the idea of hellboy being this instrument of destruction that has been um Domesticated's is not the right word but uh has walked away from that that function, and in in the movie, it's a little bit more introduced as like, oh, there still is like a place for him after, in destruction after uh, uh, after his destiny was seemingly like thwarted in in the first Hellboy movie, but uh, recognizing that like this potentially this like sad moment uh, potentially offers a way out yeah. for everyone involved and. Tying that destiny to Liz, which obviously didn't happen in the comics because Liz was just a was just a friend, I think really works because the movie has done such a really great job of uh, underlying that what kind of love that they have for each other and it does remind me a lot as i mentioned of like the matrix thing of like that idea of like when neo or someone else they're you know they're constantly trinity and neo are constantly saving each other on this idea that like our love for each other will get us through whatever prophecies or bullshit that people are telling us through this that like we we have each other's uh back in a way that like is is Instrumental to the way that we express love, and we'll make sure we continue to protect each other. And I really like that, and I really like the potential that that would have opened up in a in another movie. Now, hopefully, it, it wouldn't have been like a Matrix Revolutions, an incredibly disappointing fulfillment of that <laughs> that setup. But um, sorry to all the Revolution stands out there. Um, but it works so well in that scene um, to. To really make you understand the weight that Liz is taking on, and that line of like, uh, who would you rather have him or the world? And she says, "him," is like just a great fucking moment. Yeah, for for not just the character, but for uh, for for you know her as an actor as well. Yes. Yeah.
2: Oh, sorry. I I was gonna say that. Back to what you said was like the. I think I'm realizing more and more that you know once you break out of the constraints of having to deal with. An origin story. Once you can eliminate the Myers character, that is, you know, playing the audience of being thrust into this world that he doesn't know about anything. It, it really gives room for all of the characters to grow. But I do think that Liz benefited the most. They they build in the the Abe knows that Liz is pregnant, so they can bond more. So they actually have a relationship. They they're able to elaborate on Hellboy and Liz's relationship. But then again. Having her decide in this integral moment, you know, makes her truly part of this, this story of destiny. She's, she's a, you know, irreplaceable piece of it at this point, because like you said, they, she had an out and could have essentially said, oh, you're, you can save humanity or, and she both it it shows both the importance of hellboy to her but then also i think it shows that you know her belief that he he isn't a uh, hellboy can break out of this supposed destiny of you know bringing upon the end of humanity yeah
0: it it it's such a lovely sort of uh conglomeration of different themes from the book as well because the book has all of these characters who refuse to give up on Hellboy, including himself who, who just sort of but there's no central one figure because Broom is dead Liz isn't his his romantic figure um but there is one there is one romantic figure I won't talk about too much but um there's there's a lot of people just in the in the in the book that Are rooting for him to not become the beast of the apocalypse and love him so much that they're willing to risk it and that's kind of that's something they keep hitting in the in the uh, world war ii particular sections of of bprd where broom is just saying like i have faith in this child like this will this this child will not bring ultimate terror on us I I just really like that they mix that all up with a fucking crazy looking (laughs) spooky (laughs) angel of death monster that's like a practical effect that also this is something that Hellboy does is like Hellboy doesn't always walk in the room like a fucking hitman and murder every monster sometimes he's like alright let's have a conversation Alright, you want to hit me. I guess we have to have
2: a
1: punch Yeah, out. that's what it happens right. most of the time in the comics, right? Like, by by the end, he's just, just walking places and people are like, oh, that's he's just trying to get drunk in a bar. Yeah. And people are like, oh, fuck. Or even that witch lives. Ugh. And if he
0: can, he's trying to convince monsters to, like, fuck off. And they're always like, no, I want to keep eating babies. And he's like, now I have to punch your face off. Do you know what this means? I don't want to.
1: I don't want to fulfill my destiny. Like, just leave me alone. I promise I won't. You don't have to either. Go away. Um, uh, Yeah. So, but this does lead to the finale where they get and they have the Golden Army. I want to say, so the Golden Army has this great fake out that I actually somewhat forgot. um, Because I actually think both ways work really well. So, um, they unleash the Golden Army because they combine the crown and all the, you just see all these giant robots right and there's this great elaborate fight scene of hellboy kraus abe liz using all their techniques to take down the whole army right the zoomed in portion of the army that we see they they make a point at the end of remember there was tens of thousands of these but whatever
0: it's 70 times 70
1: The whole thing was that even one of these things was invincible. And they do a good job using their specific gifts of dismantling a a good contingent of them. Right? And there's a second I remember thinking this the the first time I saw it I thought it this time as well. It's like oh yeah, like what would be a funny twist is like, yeah, these giant fucking robots fought 30,000 years ago when a fucking light bulb didn't exist and the wheel was new. (laughs) But like, you know, the, you know Hellboy and and fucking ghost man and flame like they could take them down like it's not not annoying but your invincible army is no match for uh for the bprd that that would have worked and that's really like where they take you for about 10 minutes before after they've destroyed all the ones in the immediate proximity uh they all you find out why they're an invincible army which is no matter what the damage, which, as I mentioned, is a various components of melting, disassembling, they uh, reform and reassemble themselves and turn in on them. And it's like, oh, yeah, that works, too. Like, that that also is cinematically satisfying of, like, oh, like, literally, you can't stop them. Oh, shit. This is bad.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 awesome to see them actually work together as a great team Kraus taking over one yeah. and turning its light blue is is fantastic <laughs> yeah. um because it, it, and like again sort of like the tooth fairies there's like a cute moment when um one of them is getting really hot and it's gonna like explode and oh, it makes a train whistle noise I love
2: the train whistle noise it's amazing <laughs> yeah yeah
0: <laughs> like there's they're they're clearly they're cre- clearly like showing you that this team is at the peak of their power and it's still just not enough. And it's building hopelessness in a very fun way, uh, which is, I think, like what a great
2: advent- action adventure yeah. movie should do. Does um, does Abe get any kind of kills in there now that I'm thinking about it? Because Hellboy's, Hellboy's running and gunning. You got Krauss as, as taking over <laughs> one of them. And then I'm assuming, I can't think of anything, but does Liz melt some people with her fire? So does Abe just avoid, I mean, it, that's it's a- one of the things about the comic.
0: That's very interesting is Abe in the comics. is just a good soldier. And then he eventually realizes like so almost in an Aquaman kind of way. He's just like, I don't really have like, there's kind of no need for me to be here. I'm just like a, a pistol guy at this point, which the movie makes great use of him and makes him into the researcher of the group. Um, but in the comics, like they're all kind of researchers <laughs> and there's better researchers than Abe. Um, yeah. So there's like, a, there's a whole existential crisis here and this it, in the comics and this it's largely just will shoot at what you tell him to shoot. At.
2: No, it makes sense. I just thought it was funny because I also do remember at the very beginning of the battle, they're surrounded and Hellboy's first move is to sprint forward and slide and start shooting at people, which is great. But then I'm like, I remember just in that brief moment, I'm like, so you just abandoned like Abe, Krauss, Liz, and they're completely surrounded by these monsters who are you're struggling yeah. to take down. I'm just like, but they'll probably be fine. That's OK. Whatever. You're like, OK. okay I okay. mean, the thing that the books also
1: kind of underline is that um um the uh like Liz is by far the most powerful. Yeah. Of all of them. Yeah. So leaving Liz alone is fine, and then Krause actually surprisingly has a lot. Of, yes, yeah, a lot of things going on. Uh, yeah, so they, uh, but but the kind of uh, checkoffs linked souls uh, comes into fruition when after a, a you know uh, Hellboy's allowed to challenge because they he reveals that he's the son of the devil. Oh man, <laughs> which is implied a little by being Hellboy, mm-hmm. but he's a prince of Hell. So he can challenge for rule of the Golden Army.
0: Yeah, and and uh, that is his his way of overcoming the Golden Army as he challenges Nuada to a fight, but this time he's uh, not drunk and uh, somewhat prepared. At least he's pissed off. And then, and there's gears, there's gears. Uh, but
1: ultimately he he bests him and says that he will save him. And Nuada is like, well, just to let you know, like I told my dad this, like this whole thing is bullshit. I'm gonna keep coming for all of you. And his sister, realizing this again, does the Chekhov's linked soul and kills herself. T- and they both crumble
2: to wax. Is that what they're turning into wax? I was with, yeah. Uh, I, I figured they they turned petrified because they're trees, but then it seems to turn into yeah some sort of wax sand substance that they just kind of crumble into for both the king and the prince and princess. I'm sure it's, like, in the back margins of some old,
1: like, third-generation Grimm's fairy tale. And either Del Torre or and were like, okay, interesting. Elves turn
0: to wear. Yeah. And then they are so fragile. Like, they, yeah. they shatter immediately when Hellboy grabs the crown to yeah. piece it together. And uh, Liz immediately like, I don't think so. Uh, and melts <laughs> the yeah. crown. Yeah.
1: That's a great moment.
0: Because he goes, think think of all the 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 good I could uh, do with the the golden army. army. Because uh, I was thinking in this watch, I was like, what if that just makes the army just a wandering band of marauders with no king?
2: Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Just mindlessly murdering them. They're like, okay, well, we have no leader. So I kind of took it as like, if you burn the keys to your car, your car's not like free agent, baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can drive anywhere. (laughs) If you lose the keys to your Tesla, it just drives away, right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that how they repo Teslas sometimes? They just drive back to the dealership? I've never heard this, but I imagine that's that's gotta be true, right? I I feel like I've heard that. That like people
1: that missed payments, the Teslas are just driving back to the dealership. I'm like I I'd have to look it up. Either Either I read an article that I forgot to go Snopes it, or that really
0: did happen. That is the most cyberpunk thing I've ever fucking heard. Uh, but yeah, but yeah. so that fight is... But we haven't talked about the martial arts in this movie at all because they hired like serious martial artists and they stepped up the game in, in this movie. There's more wire work and there's more flip work. And certain moves that Nuada do, does, like, they had to pull in guys who were capable of doing these like Simone Biles level, like I'm going to do five flips in a row style acrobatics. And Del Toro was like, oh yeah, I want this to be a fight that's very much based on trampolines and mats over just wire work because we have other fights that have different character. And this final fight, I want it to be uh, based on trampolines and wire work. And you can see that like the way that the, the, the uh, characters jump at each other. It feels like they're using yeah, trampolines and landing, you know, semi-softly on mats, and then they're using sound effects to make it sound like a, a a hard hit. And it's just a it's 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 just a gorgeous fight. Like it's it's very impactful. Every time that a character gets punched in the face or whatever, you feel like, oh, shit, <laughs> that felt like that hurt. Um, and you can't tell the difference. Like, it feels like Ron Perlman and Luke Goss are doing all their own stunts when they're actually not doing all the hard shit. Like, um, there, there's trained, like, gymnast-level athletes doing doing that shit. It's oh, yeah. Com- so impressive. Compared
2: to the first one, which is, I mean, still, I, I it's such a good movie. It's such a good time. It, you can spot when anybody gets flung by wires like there there are definitely some stand parts where you're like oh okay that like it works but you can kind of see the disconnect where this one they do a good job of like they open on nuada originally he he's doing some spear work but then he's also jumping around you get to see him flex that a little bit when he takes down his dad but then when he first battles uh drunk hellboy it's mostly just some impressive like you know, spear work and doing that kind of stuff, but he doesn't really get acrobatic. And this final fight, he is jumping all over the place. He is doing, like you said, just a bunch of gymnastic style moves, but it seems to work. Like it, it does feel natural. Like it feels, it feels cohesive in the movie itself, which I think is really cool. And it builds out for a great final fight that is different from the other fights you've already seen him do. Yeah. So
1: at the end, they walk out and there's Manning who finally tracked them all down. Everyone quits. Liz reveals there's going to be twins, twins, and twin. <laughs> uh, they uh, literally walk. <laughs> <laughs> they literally, they literally walk off into the sunset, having quit. Which feels like a joke quit. It feels like there was a Hellboy three that they would never have needed to. Never needed to, like, square that circle of, like, how did they come back to work? Like, either way, it would have been fine. It's a very funny moment. It shows, like, Krause kind of, like, really being a part of the BPRD. Manning once again being left on the lurch. And then, uh, yeah, they get to walk off in the sunset in the shadow of giants, literally.
0: They all kind of outgrow the BPRD at certain points in the comics. And at some point in the comics, Hellboy does, Abe does... Liz does. Some of them come back. Some of them don't. Some of them come back and then leave again. Liz's thing is sort of to come back and leave. Like it's kind of fun. I don't think. Yeah. Like I. I, 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 I uh, it's kind of fun to see that all happen at once. Where because I guess sort of pointing to final thoughts um, for me uh, the. This movie is very much uh, Del Toro showing his bona fide. So many of these big jockey superhero action movies are actually about uh, big m- muscly cool guys who have uh, who would be accepted because they're traditionally handsome and uh, they're they're traditionally nice. And uh, wow, all the popular kids got together and formed a cool club called the Avengers and. Like while those movies, I have a lot of fun with them. Sometimes, like the reason that Hellboy actually gets my heart is because it's Del Toro, who was someone who is like a chubby kid who was obsessed with monsters and drawing monster anatomy. Did you did you did you know that that kid might have gotten uh, bullied a little bit? Um, felt like a freak <laughs> and an outsider a little bit. Um, he is identifying with these these monsters on such a level that at the end of the movie these monsters need to rebel and get out of this bureaucratic bullshit um because it's no longer serving them and and the next movie what they were setting up clearly would not have required the bprd it was the 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 Hellboy facing his destiny doesn't require a bureaucratic sign-off from Tom Manning, right? Yeah. So so my thoughts here is that, like, that ending is such a beautiful, like, freaks, freaks unite kind of ending because they have formed this beautiful family of weirdos. And it goes back to the most beautiful moments in the comics where... Hellboy doesn't want them to experiment on Abe. It doesn't want Hellboy to experiment on the on the homunculus. Um, Hellboy wants wants uh, all these creatures to be treated and, and fathered with the respect that he got, except for he didn't get Broom as a father um, after a certain point because Broom died. Um, so he has to sort of try and take on some of those broom characteristics. And that's uh, that's fairly I think it's pretty beautiful. Um, to, to have uh, this big superhero movie that's actually like it's ostensibly about weirdos, but it's actually about weirdos getting together and doing something beautiful and uniting the world like that's I re- much rather root for them than I would uh, a bunch of uh, amazingly beautiful people, um, muscly beautiful people um, deciding that they're going to do something good for the little people, you know
1: yeah I mean it, it literally ends with that you you don't you don't need the world on your side, um which you know so much of the later Marvel movies, which I enjoy quite a bit way more than Peter, but like it is a lot about like okay, how do these people fit within the global dynamics of like world power and stuff like that and I get it like at some point you drill you drill into that even bPRd as a comic series starts drilling into that about like where their alignment is with various countries and stuff like that. But, like, in this movie, it's really about, like, all right, I want to be out. I'm excited to be accepted and enjoying, like, you know, the initial Jimmy Kimmel barbs and other stuff and only recognizing that, oh, like, looking for the adulation of strangers is actually, at the end of the day, always an an empty room, right? Like, the people that you care about are the ones that are around you all the time and they've already theoretically accepted you for for here you are so the idea that like everyone you walk by in the street needs to give you a high five and go you know that was radical and you're doing a great job is is ridiculous and ultimately like an empty and self-serving thing to go through it's it's the movie star dilemma, like right, like how many famous people are would talk about how inherently they're happy, unhappy they are, and um, and uh, it's easy for for us to go, how can you be unhappy? You're rich and you ha- you're able to do all these things, and everyone knows you. But like, if you don't have a strong like system of of friends and relationships and family and whatever else it is that, like support you internally, who cares that like everyone you walk by in the street goes, Holy shit, there's you know, there's Robert Teddy Jr. Uh, <laughs> you quit alcoholism. Great job, bud, give me you know, whatever whatever the fuck else he's they're getting shouted at day. Like, that probably is fun for ten minutes and then It just becomes like potentially a reminder of how empty everything else is in your life or how how hollow and or shallow it is if you don't have a strong dynamic. And in some ways that's – I mean that's a lot of what this movie is because the first movie was him pining for worldwide acceptance and this is him rejecting all the trappings of that to go off with the family that he's
2: created. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, do you have any final thoughts on – um final thoughts a little bit there there are certain little notes that I just want to touch on cuz we never really did. There's a a big forest god elemental fight um in between the troll market and Oh yeah. uh the drunk hellboy versus Prince Nuada which is it, it's it's pretty quick. That's like the trailer set piece yes, and we missed. But it. it's 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 a pretty big fight. Uh Prince Nuada shows up. He essentially, you know, whispers to a magic uh seed and says you know kill him throws it towards some water turns into this big monster i i just think that it, it was a really interesting silly there are a lot of silly moments that also play towards the major themes of you know what they're building towards in the movie i love that hellboy's knee-jerk reaction is say i'm gonna go get big baby which is his souped up version of his pistol um and then immediately has to go save a baby from a van right afterwards. So then, of course, he's carrying this baby during the entire fight. And before he can get a shot off, he throws the baby up in the air, loads his gun, big baby. And then the monster yells at him and the baby starts crying. He says, you you woke up the baby and then starts shooting at the monster. I did like that because then it's like, oh, you woke up the gun. Here you go. While still playing with yeah. the idea of he's going to be a father soon and doesn't realize it 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 shows that you know he's got some paternal instincts even though he's you know hellboy he's not like a specific uh human being or anything like that that you'd expect to be caring about babies um the other couple things let's see there's some interesting billboards in the background at one point when liz is trying to tell red that she's pregnant originally Um. There's a giant billboard in the background that says "A big decision. Let's make it together." Oh yeah, which is again, it's like you're like it's definitely there, but it's almost too obvious. It it definitely is. Well, that comes back in that fight too, and so that's in the background. And then, what's there's one more when he's hesitating to put the final death blow into this elemental. There's another billboard behind him that says something like city of the future here or something like that. And it seems to, you know, be mimicking that he's making a decision about who he's going to be as a person. Cause he hesitates on killing a, the elemental forest God. I, I will bring up in, in brief, cause I know we're wrapping it up. I do think that this is a continuation of Guillermo del Toro thinks the fish man is sexy um, because he, he gives him a love story and, and then it rips away from him, but then I also think that during the final mission, he pretty much suits him up exactly like Kate Batginsale in Underworld, in a nice tight leathery outfit, <laughs> and then that make him Len Wiseman, which means, you know, he gets to marry Abe Sapien. And then let's see. Abe Sapien more ex- like. Exactly. Um I do and twins, and
1: twins! Twins!
2: I do think that there was a almost too much, but there's definitely a lot more religious uh symbology and lore in this one versus hellboy one there's crosses everywhere from the red cross of uh the positive on liz's pregnancy test she's wearing a cross hellboy's got a rosary wrapped around his wrist um both of the prince and princesses their scars seem to be sideways crosses um their background of the elemental fight has a bright neon cross. And then I know that this is going to be a stretch, but I did find it fun was it felt like when Hellboy gets stabbed by the spear by Prince Nuada? it seemed to bring forth certain, uh, parallels to Jesus. Cause he got slashed in the side. Similarly, he's close to death. He's practically dead. An angel brings him back to life. um, and then he 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 afterwards becomes father, which like we talked about, Jesus, father, all are one, that sort of thing. There just seems to be all that's kind of merging together. The one other thing that I did notice while well, I made a dumb note that was just kind of like poking fun, but actually I think allu- or uh, it, it kind of is just more of what the Hellboy character is to total. My note originally was, Hellboy was found in England by American soldiers fighting Germans, but he's from hell and his hair is inspired by samurais while he also embodies film noir detective personality. Um, But I do think that that kind of goes back to the fish out of water. None of this is really his culture. So he just kind of assumes and takes and combines all of it, which then Overall, links him closer to humanity rather than his, you know, his his destiny, his his Hellboy roots. He he kind of has gathered all of these little pieces of Earth and has combined them into who he is. Not you know, not not purposefully, but just kind of by his own experiences, which I think is kind of you know interesting. But he, he, it's definitely a good film and. I think I've grown even though I already liked it before, I think I've even grown to appreciate it more while watching it for this podcast because I was trying to look so closely at every possible detail. Yeah,
1: yeah that's the that's the the curse and the gift of, of <laughs> watching stuff for this podcast. Uh if it's if it's really good, it's great to like really absorb all the moments. And if it's not wasn't all that good, you're like, oh shit. I see now it I all to- I, I, my god it's full of stars <laughs> uh yeah uh well that I, I i'm so glad brian you're able to come back for this episode because i um you know i think it works really well as a duology even if obviously i uh, would have loved to see a uh part three by del toro but you know it's one of those uh, i think if only hellboy 2004 existed we would all it would be like a Pacific Rim for a lot of us, right? It would be something that we talked about, like, oh, yeah, that was really fucking cool. Like, there's some great moments, and here's the parts I like, while not, like, fully clicking as a masterpiece. But I say without reservations that, like, like this is the best superhero movie of 2008, uh, overshadowed by two other ones that went to redefine what superhero movies were in, in very separate tracks. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this movie's just so fucking... So good, and I'm glad you're able to come back and join us because uh, it would have felt a little bit incomplete. Because this is this is the you know uh, in porn terms, I don't know if you're familiar with porn. Uh, this is what they call the money shot, where
2: the cum come comes. Oh, from. I was looking around. I was scared you couldn't see me. Sorry, I, I wish we're not we're of... not doing videos. I looked around frantically, like what? I thought I was going to get Nickelodeon slimed right there. <laughs> The I wish, yeah, they never watched. made an adult
1: they, version they of "You Can't Do That degree. on Television," where cum cum This out. is the money shot.
0: <laughs> I wish this movie had made more money shot, um, because then <laughs> there would be a Hellboy three.
1: <laughs> I mean, it did make more money than its predecessor. Turned like it, it had like a what a sixty million dollar budget made one hundred sixty eight million dollars, but nope, everyone wanted to make everyone became fucking Justin Timberlake in the Social Network when uh cuz Iron Man and Dark Knight came out this year like what if we make a billion dollars instead that sounds like a better use of money uh next week
0: we, yeah we, we need to are... make a bunch of we need to make a bunch of uh very bad superhero movies because we don't have our own Marvel franchise and we will now spend the next 13 years trying to kick off our own hey
1: guys what do you think about the universal Monsterverse. Jesus. Oh god,
2: I forgot about uh, that. One of
1: the not to end it on a, with a fucking bookends, but I love that I always know the anniversary of that fucking Monsterverse cast photo because Twitter blows up every year with happy X anniversary <laughs> to the Monsterverse. <laughs> and and
2: where <laughs> we are now with it. Yeah. I still one of these days I got to see that mummy that Tom Cruise mummy. That that actually falls into the category that we were talking about before we started recording, which is, I saw it. I kind of think I forgot that I saw it. And then I was like, I, I, I saw it. I couldn't tell you a single thing from it, <laughs> but I saw it.
1: Uh, speaking of movies that shouldn't form a memory, uh, next week we're talking about Hellboy 2019, which Peter and I have both. This is the first episode that we've recorded since we've both seen it. We had not seen it before. And it lived up to our expectations, I think.
0: Oh, That's oh awesome. yeah. It was it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. Actually it was
1: worse than I thought it was gonna be because we're gonna talk about it. I was like, even though who you know, Ron, Ron Perlman, impossible to replace. But you know, when they announced the casting I'm like, Okay, yeah, I could see that and he's the worst part of that movie.
0: Yeah, we'll get into it, but I'm gonna I we're going to I get can't, into it. I can't uh I can't blame him wholly. Um uh-huh.
1: I don't blame him. I like him as an actor. He should. It was he was miscast. The script is bad. The portrayal is bad. Uh, there are there are positive things. It's not going to be all shit fest. Like I actually think a lot of the special effects and imagery um, is is really good. It just does not have a movie or a plot or a cohesive vision or good actors or anything to hang it on. His makeup is, is uncanny.
2: It's hard not to stare at it. Oh
1: my god! It's he just like he does not have the face for yeah. it. and. Here's the weirdest thing I'll say. We're going to expand on this as a little teaser for next week. The most fucking bizarre part about the movies is they did a reboot where you go. Oh, and it's like specifically like we're going to go to the comics. and We're going to tell these comic stories. And that's what they do. Um, but then they decide to have the characterization be a more edgy version of Ron Perlman's. It's It's a bizarre choice. Yeah. Uh, that I don't understand why they did it, and it fucking ruins any... Th- that and the soundtrack ruins what could potentially be at least a uh, visually interesting adaptation of a few Hellboy stories. But we're going to get into it a lot, uh, as well as the breakup of our two boys that went to Hollywood in our theme. But thankfully, as uh, we restructured... Uh, The ending of this month so that the the final say uh, isn't us uh, talk about Hellboy 2019's disappointment. You first talk about the Hellboy comics, we're going to have a whole episode to end the summer uh, devoted to uh, everything we read. Not so much a structure, we're going to go through Hellboy, we're going to go through BPRD. Peter has not reached the finale of that 25 year arc yet, so I'll save my comments minimally but if you are ever interested in reading tens of thousands of pages or whatever the fuck we just read over the last eight months uh, don't listen to that episode because we'll spoil it or at least we'll we'll hit a, a spoiler warning during it so that you can listen to us at least say hi and that we miss you at the beginning uh, but with that Peter Ryan Aaron. Aaron right now the only golden army is the P I need to say oh yeah
0: because
1: uh, we've been recording a long time is what I'm saying
0: Good night. Oh, hey. Uh, I was, Aaron, ho- really, I was
2: really hoping you were going to jump in with something. Oh, wait, I got uh, you. You can call me Prince Nuada because I'm in control of this golden army. And that is my P. <laughs> uh
0: Aaron, real quick, yes or no question. Just answer it really quickly. Um, do you think that Hellboy um, can be considered horny even though he doesn't have his horns? Oh, yeah. I mean.
2: He impregnated Liz, man. Of course. Yeah. Good night. He's got a horn on his tail. <laughs> mmm. Mwah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>